ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hello? Is there anyone there? RFM. Oh, here we are. Hey. Yes. We're we're back for part two. How you doing? Essentially, we are uh, we're going to do a second book review of Dan Vogel's on how to win women, how to win with women: a guide to meeting and attracting today's woman. I'm really interested to hear what Vogel has to say about today's woman. I'm and you, you know? and what we're showing on the screen for those listening on audio is a picture of a book with a woman on the front looking fetchingly over her shoulder at the cameraman or woman. And it says, Dan Vogel, how to win with women. Nice alliteration there. A guide to meeting and attracting today's woman. This will be the next book review that Brian Hales does on yeah. Dan Vogel. Dan Vogel, what do you have to say about that? And uh, how can I get a copy of this book and meet your friend? <laughs> yeah. What do you think? It's out, of, it's out of print. It's out of print. It's, they sold out. How many times did they publish it? The third edition, fourth edition? <laughs> <laughs> okay what is the secret dan to attracting women tell our audience please tell if i know <laughs> <laughs> so it's like just it's a very short book is what you're saying yeah for the record for the record this is a different dan vogel correct yes not the he not probably you. he probably made far more money than i ever have well he had probably a few more girlfriends than you had too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Well, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for tonight's show. We'll be back next time. Same. No, wait a second. What's going to happen tonight is we're actually going to be doing the part of last week's show that we didn't have a chance to do last week. Time was a problem. Also, storms in Dan Vogel's neighborhood in Ohio. He's chosen to live in the tornado-ridden Midwest. And so uh, his it blew so hard, it actually knocked out his internet for a while. But we wanted to bring him back because this all started with a book review that Brian Hales did for Dan Vogel's new book, Charisma Under Pressure, Joseph Smith, 1831 to 1839, giving it two stars out of five. Yes, two-star review. And we were using that as an introduction to talk about Brian Hales' new Book of Mormon defense, okay, which involves words and numbers. And apparently, the more there are under either category, the truer the Book of Mormon is. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to focus on Brian Hales, and we'll watch Dan Vogel eviscerate Brian Hales <laughs> live on this stage. Really, really big shoe. <laughs> Thank you. So are well, we ready? You, know, you want to say anything in, by, uh, in, by preface there, Dan or Bill? Let's jump into it. Okay, yes. well, I, I wanted to start off by mentioning something that happened on Facebook uh -oh. on your on your post on Mormonism Live uh, page or channel, whatever you call it. Um, and somebody posted there underneath the advertisement for this show um, with respect to me talking to me. Responding is quite beneath you. Oh, 
I don't know if he's insulting the show or what, but um well at least guess... you got respect. I don't get no respect. <laughs> oh yeah, you did say respect with respect. Uh guess who gave this comment a thumbs up? I have no idea. Was it I Lord? <laughs> no. Uh none other than Brian he, Hales. I was gonna say, is it an Brian Hales? Also? So he is aware. He is aware. He's out there hovering. <laughs> Why would he say it was beneath me to respond to him? When he responded to you? <laughs> is that an insult to himself? I don't know. I don't it know is very funny. No, Brian Hales is most happy when he's unresponded to. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was a little interesting tidbit, little hi history to the show here. Maybe he's watching tonight. I, you know, so I'm going to continue. We're going to continue talking about his uh, irrelevant comments to my uh, book on um, Amazon. Hmm. Okay, good. So I want to go to s slide uh, 13. Yes, that one. And we talked briefly about how the Book of Mormon has 39.3 words per sentence. Very long sentences. Yes, you know, it's a sign of divinity. My creative writer, my creative writing teacher, Mrs. Randalls, would have excoriated me for having such run-on sentences. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And so he, Hales, compares this to all these literary works, and somehow the implying, I guess, the Book of Mormon's better than them because the sentences are longer. And we talked about how like, that's not really very literary to be doing stuff like that. That That's that's why everybody else is writes shorter sentences, easier to read. Uh, you don't get lost. And then these average, this that's the average length. It must be more uh, longer than that even. I can't imagine. Yes. But so... I, I, my wife pointed out a little saying, uh, Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, hmm. uh, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or uh, I didn't have time to be brief. Mm -hmm. uh, Ernest Hemingway. Yes. He's, probably, he's in there somewhere. Grapes of Wrath. Where, where is it? Um, he said, to be successful in writing... Use short sentences. Right. Another thing Hemingway said that I remember is that he said there's only one thing in writing that's harder than to write a simple sentence, and that's to write a second. Yeah. So what you say by this imply, you use the word imply with this slide. Now, this slide is from Brian Hales, correct, oh, Dan? Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. If they, Some people might not have been here last week. Th so, this is an argument by Brian implication. Hales. Yeah, he's not the, stating what the argument is. He's just putting uh, comparisons out there. And the implication is the Book of Mormon is somehow superior. He doesn't actually want to say it because once you start saying it, like you have been doing, Dan, in the last three minutes, the argument falls apart. Yeah, well, the Book of Mormon is less literary than Brian Hales presents. And Joseph Smith is smarter than Hales presents. So if you bring those like this way, it it kind of shows that Joseph Smith is quite capable of writing a book like the Book of Mormon. It's exactly what we would expect of his ability. 
and we'll we'll get more into that. But the next slide, say, just oh, a quick sorry. thing too. That's all right. No, no, just a quick thing. Every one of the rest of these pieces of literary work was an author sitting down and writing down their ideas on paper. Joseph Smith is the only person on that screen who dictated a book, and we all we all know again based on. Uh, the science behind writing and dictating that dictation almost always incurs longer sentences than writing yeah. because you're not sitting with your own writing and knowing where you should put the punctuation in. Right. You're speaking yeah. and you're using lots of conjunctions and people uh, don't talk in sentences and paragraphs. And so if he really <laughs> wanted to compare this to something, you would have to have other works of dictation to actually see how the Book of Mormon measures up with other Yeah, words. so Hales is comparing apples to oranges. Yes, he is. I think okay. what the slide shows is that the Book of Mormon was dictated. Yeah, yes, there you go. That's what it shows. That's <laughs> that's what this proves, is the Book of Mormon was dictated. Yeah. Okay, so, what slide uh, number, you number 14. Yep. Okay, well, we talked about this uh, briefly, but I forgot to mention something about it that was important. <laughs> And that is that, so here we have, I highlighted the, uh, his 32 examples or uh, proofs that the Book of Mormon is a complex book because it has these elements in it. Yeah, like and, eighth grade reading level. Yeah, so it, and, and early, early dialect, English, which is really bad grammar. Um, no punctuation. No punctuation, but we have like chiasmus, alter, alternates, uh, different literary forms, poetic forms, style. Okay, stylometric uh, consistencies. It says oh, consistencies. At least at four least different four authors. different authors. So there this is their. You know, they've gone from uh, sixteen or whatever authors down to four certain ones, and over here on the other side, uh, subjects. Uh, discussed with precision at least three biblical law, olive tree husbandry, and warfare tactics. Okay, so all of these elements here that we're looking at are contested. Okay, this is what the apologists think that uh, they find in the text themselves, and especially chiasmus 367, those are. Like, I would strongly contest that. I would say there's maybe 20 or less actual, real tight, indisputable chiasms. Okay, so uh, because they're apologetic proofs that can't be assumed as being in evidence because they are unresolved and not generally accepted, so they shouldn't be in this list. They're still being, they're being discussed. So you can't just, like, throw them up there as if, this is evidence the Book of Mormon is complex because they see chias chiasms where there aren't any. <laughs> and they see and authors where they can't prove that there's actually four authors or that there's not any authorial drift, you know, taking place uh, it, for a first uh, author dictating a book. Yeah, there, I remember, I think it's Chris Smith. I think that's what his name is. Yeah. Chris Smith did a presentation and he compared the Book of Mormon to other works of literature and, and ones that were similar, Late War and First Book of Napoleon, and actually found that those books also contained a surprisingly high amount of chiastic structures. Yeah. Hmm. 
Right. Good point. Well, By the because way, I was especially, oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Oh. I was interested in the the choice that he made for all of his lists with the numbers. I noticed that he didn't include a a list for uh, Book of Mormon acronyms, and then a number after that, <laughs> or perhaps a list where it would say uh, number of King James Version verses quoted. There would be yeah. a rather large number after that, or perhaps number of places the Book of Mormon copies ideas or concepts from 19th century methodism yeah those would those should all be also be added to the list just the, in the interest of completion and fullness i think they, they have numbers yes they do <laughs> okay so my point about some of these on the list here is i say uh, all of husbandry i read it and i find all sorts of mistakes <laughs> in the husbandry uh description uh, so anyway, we will move on to uh, slide 17, which is where we left off before the storm hit me. And this is Joseph Smith's oratory skills. And these are all quotes. We quoted these last time, and they're all like Joseph Smith was a powerful speaker, even though he wasn't polished like Sidney Rigdon, you know, or maybe Parley P. Pratt. Uh, but he still had charisma and, and force in his language, and people were spellbound by his uh, sermons. And I wanted to add just one more quote to that, which uh, is a quote from Peter Burnett. And notice that these are all quotes that Hale didn't uh, include. He, he included uh, things that mentioned that he wasn't learned or he wasn't a great orator like Sidney Rigdon. He included those things, but he didn't include those kinds of quotes. Peter Burnett, um, which was uh, who was Joseph Smith's attorney in Missouri in 1838, and he later said that in conversation Joseph Smith was slow and used too many words to express his ideas and would not generally go directly to the point, but that as a sermonizer. Joe Smith was an awkward but vehement speaker. Okay, so what I want to point out by that quote, the reason why I put it in there is because Joe Smith used too many words, and that's exactly what we find in the Book of Mormon. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, about how wordy the Book of Mormon is and what that actually means. Um, so then the next quote, the next slide is Parley P. Pratt. And remember, Polly P. Pratt knew Joseph Smith since 1830, okay? So in this first phrase, should be paid attention to really closely where he says, Smith's language abounded in original, original eloquence peculiar to himself. So this is a trait. This isn't something he learned uh, within the lifetime, uh, you know, from 1830 to 1844. This is his eloquence, original eloquence peculiar to himself. He always had it. Okay, not polished, not studied, not smoothed and softened by education and refined by art, but flowing forth in its own native simplicity and profusely abounding in variety of subject and manner. He interested and edified while at the same time he amused and entertained his audience and none listened to him that were ever weary with his discourse. Mm. So this is Parley P. Pratt. It's 
So I'm going to argue that it's really uh, artificial to try to limit it to 1829, uh, where we don't have very much because he isn't famous yet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's an artificial limitation. One might learn to be a better writer of literature by going maybe to school, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. One doesn't learn charisma. There's no classes or school for charisma. Hales can't point to any event that suddenly turned Joe Smith into a charismatic leader or speaker. Pratt, who knew Joe Smith since 1830, said that he witnessed his original eloquence peculiar to himself. It's really interesting, Dan, because first off, I want to just remind everybody that the reason that Dan is going through this is to counter the quotes that Brian Hales came up with to try and demonstrate that Joseph Smith did not have the oratory skills necessary to dictate the Book of Mormon. And I look now, when you take this quote from Parley P. Pratt and separate it from the rest of the autobiography, which I read a couple times, but I look at this one quote and I just think how similar this description is to whoever it was who dictated the Book of Mormon. Yeah. He, yeah, so this is, his, uh, he had the ability, according to Barnaby Pratt, even though he wasn't talking about that. So the next slide is what I call Speaking Fluent Bible. <laughs> There's like a pseudo-biblicism about the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. a, the sacred idiom, and I call it Speaking Fluent Bible. We don't have any verbatim transcriptions of his sermons to compare with the Book of Mormon. That would be ideal. Uh, some researchers who have studied Joe Smith's correspondence have noticed a curious blend of biblical allusions similar to the Book of Mormon and Joe Smith's revelations. So the next slide. You're muted. I'm not sure if he's means to be heard. Hey, Bill, can you hear us? Oh, oh, are you having trouble getting the slide? He's having trouble getting the slide, Dan. That's what it is. I think he's swearing to himself there, but. <laughs> I'm glad I can't lip read. There we go. Yeah, here we go. Drum roll, please. No, next one. There we are. There we go. Oh, here we are. Who's so this? This is Nicholas J. Frederick, Associate Professor of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. And he says, and he wrote this really neat article on having many things to write to you, a biblical intertextuality in Joseph Smith's two Colesville letters, uh, which are dated to 1830. Are those written to the Colesville saints? Yeah. Okay. And it's signed by Joseph Smith and John Whitmer, but it's Joseph Smith. Uh, dozens of Smith's letters are extant, many of which incorporate the language of the Bible in ways that are similar to his scriptural text. Stop the presses. I think that's important. Yeah. So he's saying, so Nicholas Frederick, the guy who's the associate professor of ancient scripture. Yeah. At BYU says dozens of Smith's letters are extant, many of which incorporate the language of the Bible in ways that are similar to his, i.e. Joseph Smith's scriptural texts, i.e. including the Book of Mormon. Please proceed. 
you go. Keep going. Over the course of this article, <laughs> I argue, that's uh, Nicholas Frederick. And by the way, this is from the article, having many things to write to you, biblical intertextuality in Joseph Smith's two Colesville letters. By the way, intertextuality is the nice word for borrowing. And really mean people would say plagiarism. That may be too far, but definitely the Bible showing up in the Book of Mormon or other texts written by Joseph Smith. We're talking about the Book of Mormon tonight because that's where Brian Hales has led us. Over the course of this article, I argue that Joseph Smith's two Colesville letters display a remarkably complex intertextuality with the Bible that puts them at the very least on par with his canonized revelations. Due to these intertextual similarities, I will suggest that Smith's letters must become part of the conversation when we talk about Joseph Smith and his biblical projects, whether that means the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, or Joseph Smith's Bible translation. This quote from Nicholas Frederick and his research on this subject seem to be at direct odds with what Brian Hales is trying <laughs> to argue. Yeah, so I think Hales is swimming against the current here uh, with this. Uh, I think it's kind of a, a um, you know, de-evolution of Mormon thinking to go back and start becoming more fundamentalist about Joseph Smith's revelations and the Book of Mormon translation not having anything to do with Joseph Smith and that it was well beyond his ability. So, Dan, can I ask you, I'm sorry, if I'm understanding this correctly, what uh, Nicholas Frederick, Professor Frederick, is saying in this article written in the Journal of Mormon History, by the way, which is no slouch, uh, it's no interpreter, let's put it that way, that he got it uh, published there. But what he's suggesting is that if we look at the letters that Joseph Smith wrote in and around the same time, because it's Colesville, right? That's early New York period. Uh, at around the same time as he dictated the Book of Mormon, we see the kind of biblical intertextuality and borrowings in his letters as we see in his Book of Mormon translation. Yeah, and the thing, the point, the point here is that to recognize we are not talking about using the Bible as a proof text or quoting directly from the Bible, but rather as language to express unique concepts. In other words, he spoke fluent King James version. So the Book of Mormon isn't beyond Joseph Smith's ability, and so he's Joseph Smith is using like I had that grinder. You know, it's like he's mm. not just quoting the Bible. He's like chewing it up and spitting it out. And it's a whole nother another thing. Right. It's a new creation. It isn't saying the same thing the Bible was saying, but he's using little bits, allusions and little snippets of the Bible, peppering his speech when he's talking about anything else. Anything is just part of his language. And so the Book of Mormon is Joseph Smith's language. <laughs> I'll tell you another little thing is uh, I'm in the middle of preparing for next week's episode. And one of the things I'm reading is a messenger and advocate, uh, the April 1835 edition. And as I'm reading it, there's an article from Oliver Cowdery and from Joseph Smith, where they're trying to really walk a line around <clears throat> abolition, abolitionist and slavery. Yeah, yeah. And as I read Joseph Smith's mind reasoning out how to walk that line <clears throat> sorry i actually find he's doing it brilliantly um there is an intelligence to that person that that it seems as though apologists need him to be a dumb country bumpkin 
in some instances. It's kind of like the tight and loose translation models, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, in some yeah, instances, yeah. they need Joseph Smith to be a dumb country bumpkin. And in other instances, they need him to be brilliant and trying to learn Hebrew. And, and it's just a strange thing. But the reality is that if we take Joseph Smith as maybe not having the ability to write as well as other folks his age, that has nothing to do with his intelligence or his ability to articulate uh, a narrative or a story. Right. Very good. Um, it was. Anyway, so, I was just going to say it was Harold Bloom who famously called Joseph Smith a religious genius. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another way to test Hale's thesis is to compare the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith's revelations which were said to be given, quote, given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to an understanding. That's DNC 124. What this is saying is that God is imitating Joseph Smith's language right down to the faulty grammar. Some of the, his early followers thought the language of the Revelation sounded too much like Joseph Smith and hesitated to endorse their publication. Joseph Smith received a revelation that challenged them to produce a revelation better than what they considered the weakest. This is of DNC 67. They reportedly failed, probably not because they couldn't better Joseph Smith's language, but because they couldn't imitate God's voice. So comparing the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith's revelations is a legitimate test because it approximates the Book of Mormon. So he has that same voice. He's using the same voice. Um, so it is significant if we also find Hebraisms, chiasms, and other kinds of rhetorical repetition in Joseph Smith's revelations. This is very complex, but not beyond Justice Smith's ability or the ability of researchers sometimes to find the patterns in a non-ancient text produced by Joseph Smith. By the way, Dan, something you had mentioned maybe yesterday when we were talking is that the acknowledged king of the Hebrew poetry who appears in the Old Testament is Isaiah, hands down. He yeah. is the prophet poet. And who do we find quoted chapters and chapters of in the text of the Book of Mormon, but Isaiah? So it's not just something where it would have to come from some other source. The very Isaiah that's being quoted by chapters and chapters and chapters in the Book of Mormon could lend itself to a repetition of that same kind of presentation, either oh, subconsciously yeah. or consciously. Yeah, the poetic style. I mean, Nephi says that, uh, Isaiah it was his favorite. You know, he loves quoting Isaiah. Well, it's mm -hmm. Joseph Smith. That was his favorite too. And most of the great examples of chiasmus, the really tight ones that you can see even in the English translation, it's so tight. And there are only maybe five, uh, I mean, uh, six or eight, uh, you know, lines long. Uh, and those are the best ones for proving intentionality. Is that and, in the Book of Mormon you're talking about, or Isaiah? No, in Isaiah. Okay. In the Book of Isaiah, people in Joseph Smith's day knew there was chiasmus, or as I mentioned last time, anti-metaboly in the Book of Isaiah. Um, so, uh, so if we go to the next slide, 
and I, I know I'm jumping in a lot. I did last week too, but no, I want to note. I want to note the Book of Mormon as it's read. And again, I know the apologists want to leave room that it's not this, but if you read the actual narrative of the Book of Mormon, it absolutely is this. The Book of Mormon is ancient prophets, their narrative allegedly being given by God, but it's their narrative being handed to Joseph Smith, right? So I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, the DNC is God telling Joseph Smith what God wants Joseph Smith to know. The Book of Mormon is God telling Joseph Smith what Nephi and Mormon and Moroni and Alma wrote down. So they shouldn't be the same kind of writing. Hmm. They should be not. Well, yeah, different. right. You mean the, yeah, okay. DNC so, is a heavenly being dictating the narrative. The Book of Mormon is ancient prophets in the Americas dictating the narrative. Right. So what we're going to see is chiasmus here in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And this gentleman here, I corresponded with him quite a lot many years ago when I was studying chiasmus, John Welsh's examples. And I got on to his thesis. And, and his thesis is uh, conceptual patterns of repetition in the Doctrine and Covenants and their implications. So it's a BYU thesis in 1975. And Richard Shipp, uh, he uh, mapped out all of these different sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. And some came out as chiasmus, some came out as alternates, some came out as various forms of rhetorical repetition, different styles of repetition. And, uh, and some of them got pretty elaborate. And I, I would... I wouldn't say that they were all intentionally uh, dictated that way. It's just that humans can find the patterns in whatever and in, in, you know, in writing. And so here we have examples of chiasmus from the Doctrine and Covenants. And, you know, uh, he that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that is abased, he that abaseth himself shall be exalted. These are short ones. Dan, by me. the way, that's actually a quote from the New Testament, right? I wouldn't know. After the parable about the guy who comes to the, the feast and, you know, when uh, you go to a feast, don't take the high seats, but sit down low with the, the, the hoi polloi. And then the leader of the feast shall say, friend, come oh, up higher yeah. and then thou shalt be exalted uh, in the presence of all those. And, and then what it closes this? with sit, this. He that, sit, for he that yeah. exalted himself shall be abased. So yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, he's definitely, uh, God's quoting himself from the New Testament. But then yeah. there's these others, and like, um, what's the next one, Dan? Can you read that? Are you? No, I can't. All Thank kingdoms have a law given, and there are many kingdoms, for there is no space in the which there is no kingdom, and there is no kingdom in the which there is no space, either a greater or a lesser kingdom, and unto every kingdom is given a law. So that's very nice. That's a nice chiasmus. That's not quoting from the Bible. I can pretty much guarantee that. Dan, I got to tell you this. Back in the 80s, when I'm in my Mormon apologist heyday, I learned about this. You know, for I knew about, of course, Jack Welch discovering chiasmus in the Book of Mormon in 1968 when he was on yeah. his mission to Germany. Everybody knows the story, right? It's an amazing uh, discovery. And then he wrote more about it and did a collection of essays from different people on different books. And he included his own on the Book of Mormon in this. Um, chiasmus in, in Antiquity, I think, was the name of it. I did not like this. I did not pursue it because in my mind, this detracted from the significance of the evidence of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. The whole yeah. point of proving that 
there's chiasmus in the Book of Mormon is to suggest that it was actually written by ancient Hebrew authors and not by a 19th century American farm boy. But then you start finding them in the Doctrine and Covenants and you go, wait a second. Either we're going to say that it's not significant as far as the historicity of the Book of Mormon goes, that chiasmus occurs in the Book of Mormon or where Richard Shipp may have gone to the only place that was left to go to is that chiasmus is sort of the language of God. Do you remember what he went to? What yes. his conclusion was, Dan? Was that it? Yes. Yeah, it's the language of God. God talks in circles all the time. That's why it's so hard to figure out what he's saying and why there's so many denominations it's based upon code. the Bible. It's a code. The it's Bible a, code. I remember yeah, that one, too. It's So when Jack Wells started out, it was proof that it was Hebrew. And in the... BYU studies article, that's what he presented it as, evidence that it was a he Hebrew, a uniquely Hebrew style of writing. Mm -hmm. And then it was being found in, in uh, Latin and Greek and other languages. And then he published a book, Caius, in Germany. And uh, that book had all these different examples. So then it was no longer proof that it was Hebrew. It was proof that it was ancient. ancient. Yeah. yeah. So then, then we started finding ship was one of the, one of them finding chiasmus and other uh, in in the Doctrine and Covenants and it's um, in the Book of Abraham they say and it, a lot of it depends on the ingenuity of the researcher and it gets harder to say that it was there intentionally in the text unless it's really tight like those then you start mm -hmm. having a stronger argument for uh, existing there maybe intentionally. So then the next slide, there's more. I'm just showing you that. Even more that, complex. Wow. Yeah. That bottom one is a similar to one that Welch created for the Book of Mormon. So on the ends, there's little sub, you know, mm -hmm. a grouping uh, of ideas that repeat themselves in the beginning. Well, it's hard to say that the doc this is proof that the Doctrine and Covenants was written by ancient Hebrews. Right. Well, in the Doctrine and Covenants has Hebraisms in it, of course, because just misdoing the uh, the uh, imitation biblical language. So what this proves is that God is not Mormon; He's actually Jewish. <laughs> he's he's he's. Um, English, Elizabethan English, uh, King James English. Um, so in the next one is one that I, one of my favorites that I kind of fell on to my own, <laughs> which is uh, DNC 19. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all to tremble. Very nice. If that were in the Book of Mormon and it was the 1980s, <laughs> they'd be I'd be all over this it. as evidence. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, and it, actually, that helps me memorize it. Hmm. So, there is uh, much more to say about chiasmus, but it's clear the Book of Mormon and Justmas revelations reflect Justmas language abilities. This is true even if one views the Book of Mormon as a translation. This is another conceptual problem with Hale's analysis. He wants to remove Joseph Smith from the process, apparently assuming 
tight translation instead of loose translation. Otherwise, some things on his list don't make sense. And so that's a, there's a bunch of things. Okay, the next slide. These are the things I think you should take off his list. Okay, a reading level, which is Joseph Smith. The dialect of early English is still Joseph Smith. College level vocabulary, Joseph Smith. The chiasms, the alternates, the literary forms, the biblical intertextuality. All these should be taken off the list because they are Joseph Smith. It shows that he has this ability in other places. Can you put a fine point on me, Dan? I'm trying to follow this as closely as I can. I'm not sure I've got it 100% yet. Are you saying that each of these highlighted areas on Brian Hale's list yeah. have nothing to do, well, backing up a second, that if Brian Hales is going to go for things like chiasmus, then he's necessarily imputing a tight translation to the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So in other words, whatever Joseph Smith sees on the stone in the the divine light and reads off the words are being given to him he's not involved beyond that except insofar as to read the words that god gives him is that right that's the tight translation right right yeah, which he can just account reads for that's a mechanical reading of the text right so if the ancient hebrew authors are writing their hebrew ideas down in a hebrew poetic form known as chiasmus then it has to be tight in the translation in order to preserve that chiasmus in English, right? Yeah. That's but what you're saying one. is, if I'm understanding correctly, that the things that you've underlined here are highlighted, like reading level eighth grade. That doesn't make any difference what his reading level is if he's just reading off the, the stone, the words, and it's a mechanical process. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that... that uh since we can show that this is Joseph Smith's ability in other places, it really doesn't make the his argument that Joseph Smith couldn't have done any of these things on this list. If the Book of Mormon is too complex for Joseph Smith to have done on his own, since we've shown, shown that he can do these things, it's not evidence. I just got what you're saying now. What you're saying is we can see from his letters, like his Colesville letters and his other yeah. revelations, he can do each and every one of the things that are talked about here. Yeah. So they don't make any difference in a list of why the Book of Mormon is a complex book because Joseph Smith did those in other areas. Yeah. Without uh, any preparation or text or anything, he's dictating long revelations and they have patterns in them that can be discovered whether they're there intentionally or not is maybe a different subject. So it's just what I'm saying is that some of these things, why these are Joe Smith, he's the author of the Book of Mormon because we he ha, he has these characteristics in other places. Got it. Thank you. Okay, so the next slide we're I'm going to go through is uh, eight things out of his uh, review of my book. So the first one is that there's two hundred sixty nine thousand three hundred twenty words. In the Book of Mormon, I mean, of course, every book, even crappy books, have numbers, and uh, it doesn't say this. And who who can relate to this number? Does anybody can anybody relate to this? <laughs> it's a large number. We're overwhelmed. Boy, that's a lot of words, right? But yeah. how many words is it really? 
I mean, if you put it in context, it becomes less impressive than this huge number we're looking at here, mm -hmm. you know? So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, <laughs> so we go to the next, oh, okay. The next slide. Um, so I should say first that uh, the first edition of the Book of Mormon is 588 pages, okay? Five, 588 pages in the, in the uh, first edition of the Book of Mormon, right? It's a little beat up, but this is like a replica of the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is the first edition, and the current edition is 531 pages, but they're they're both they're both uh, you know similar sized books right over here they're similar sized books they're only a few pages difference uh, the print the print is pretty is large and so uh, this is seven by four and a quarter and one and a quarter inches thick. Right. Right. That's the original copy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're going to look at two modern editions and the modern edition is, is about the same si size of this book. Okay. So you got, you got the, it's a lot. You, you have a lot of words in your book, Dan Vogel. Yeah. <laughs> Mine's bigger than Joseph's. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, um, and you are so much more the prophet. <laughs> uh, the two mo these two modern editions are basically the size of a regular book nowadays, not small. And in the second edition of the Book of Mormon, 1837, was even smaller than this, so it could fit in your pocket. Hmm. And it had more pages. So... Um, so if we take the Book of Mormon, which was so much smaller in its original incarnation, and yeah. then we increase the size of it to what we're more used to, say the size right. of your book, yeah, does that reduce the number of pages? Yes. So what you see on here is that they're selling at Amazon a, a modern Book of Mormon, and it has 214 pages. What? Wait a second. That's less than half. Does that have the entire text of the Book of Mormon in it? Yes, I checked. Um, has the entire text. If it's not in double column. Well, it is in double columns. Excuse me. It is in double columns. It's regular type. Just increasing the size of the, uh, of the book to a regular size made it 214 pages. It's a six by nine inches by, and it's only a half an inch thick. <laughs> it's only a half an inch thick. The, the one we're looking at. So here's a typical page. The next slide shows you the typical page. Looks like that. It's not super small or anything. It's just that it's larger uh, page. So the, in the next book, I, I got another one just to compare to make sure we're on the right track here. This is the unofficial chat. GP, GPT translation for Gen X or Gen Z, excuse me, Gen Z. 
This is uh, 239 pages, a little more. Uh, this is five and a quarter. That's what by happens eight. when you take out the and it came to pass. It it reduces yeah. the length of the book in half. Well, I don't think they did that. Well, maybe they did. Uh, yeah, they probably did. Because we'll read part of it. <laughs> it's a half an inch thick, and it's by Brosef Smith. <laughs> Brosef Smith. Brosef. I wonder if they got Smith. slapped with a with a cease and desist order for using the the church's format for their Book of Mormon. We had somebody have that happen. To oh the yeah, yeah. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that interview. Uh, anyway, so show the average page on the next slide. That's a your. First Nephi, his reign and ministry. Okay, so it, it starts out, yo, it's Nephi. I was born to dope parents who taught me all their knowledge. I've been through some tough times, but the Lord has blessed me with mad knowledge about his mysteries. So I'm making this record of my life. This record is in my father's language, which is a mix of Jewish and Egyptian knowledge. I swear this record is legit and true. And I wrote it myself based on what I know. So it gives you an idea of what, what it uh, sounds like anyway. And so 239 pages. This Okay. So this, this includes all those quotes from the Bible, by the way, which amounts to about 15% of, of the Book of Mormon's text. Hmm. Okay, so the next slide, we're going to bring in the Reverend M.T. Lamb, who wrote uh, in uh, 1887, his, his book was called The Golden Bible. And he spent several pages rewriting passages of the Book of Mormon to make the language more concise. In one instance, he takes a 69-word passage and condenses it into 32 words, like here. You're looking at it in the solid red. So that's cutting it by more than 50%. Yeah. Here, can I can I read oh, this just so that the people listening at home... Oh, read, do you want to read the whole thing? or? Yeah, I'll just read the first okay. one. And now, what what verse is that? Do we know? Oh, I... Now I, Nephi, must make an end of prophesying unto you. It sounds like it's um like uh, the end of 2 Nephi, maybe. But this is the passage as it appears in the Book of Mormon. And now I, Nephi, must make an end of my prophesying unto you, my beloved brethren. And I cannot write but a few things which I know must surely come to pass. Wherefore, the things which I have written sufficeth me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. Wherefore, I shall speak unto you plainly according to the plainness of my prophesying. That's the passage as it appears in the current Book of Mormon. This fellow, Lamb. What were his first two initials? M.T. M.T. Martin. Martin. So anyway, he was a minister in Salt Lake City, I believe, um, oh. in 1887. And he wrote, yeah. uh, his criticisms mostly were directed against uh, Orson Pratt's new edition, the 1879 edition of the Book of Mormon, which had footnotes, you know, geographic footnotes, especially saying, you know, uh, the land northward, North America, land southward, South America, the the narrow neck of land, the Isthmus of Darien. You know, that's what Orson Pratt put in there. And so he proceeded to make fun of uh, this hemispheric geography and how silly it, it made the Book of Mormon sound. And a bunch of other silly things in the Book of Mormon that you don't really realize is going on, like every thousands of people going up and filling Jesus's prints in, in his hands and feet would take days. 
you know, and if they only took uh, so many se uh, seconds to do it. And he talked about the barges and all sorts of things. Anyway, it's an interesting book. And But here he's right in the beginning of his book. He's talking about the horrible language that is he, he's confronted with. And yeah, he it's complains. Just, it's unnecessarily verbose. He says, yeah. this is 69 words. And if we leave out of the above extract, the inelegant and uncalled for repetitions in which all the chiasms lie, the unnecessary verbiage in which the chiasms lie, we may still preserve every thought of the writer in a much simpler, neater, and better constructed sentence of only 32 words as follows. Bill, you there? You want to read this one? And now I, Nephi, must close my prophesying with a few words plainly spoken, according to my custom, concerning the doctrine of Christ, which... Words I know must surely come to pass. Boom. He said, everything, it's done. In other words, somebody sat down, gave some thought to it, and constructed a sentence that was less than 39.1 words, or whatever the average was. So what I'm hearing, Dan, what I'm hearing is, first off, you're saying all these words of somewhere over a quarter million words that are in the Book of Mormon, you can't get your head around that. Let's look at pages, okay? Yeah. And now what you're saying is the pages of the Book of Mormon from its first instantiation and how much that was. Well, that's a little book. Let's get it in a book that's the size of today's book. And now it goes down to less than half. It goes around to, was it 200 and how many 14. pages? 214. 214 pages. You take out, say, 15% for what's quoted from the Bible if you want, okay? And that's going to be around... Uh, 214, uh, that would be 20, 30, around 30. That's conservative. It's about 34. So you it goes from 214 pages down to 180 pages, right? Uh, Let me know if I got my wrath my, my rat 184. Mic. If you take 50. <laughs> my math okay. right. <laughs> so you're, you're a little bit ahead of me here, but. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Because I, I, there's more examples that. Reverend Lang gave. Oh, let's do that because now we've gotten down to about 180 pages. So in if a, a literary, book today. if a literary per person wrote it, this is what it would look like. It would be like Pearl S. Buck. Remember Pearl S. Buck's uh, Bible? <laughs> you know, I remember the How Good she, Earth. She she rewrote the Bible. No, I didn't know that. Oh, Pearl S. Buck. Yeah. So anyway, so. Um, this is how, if the Book of Mormon was truly literary, this is what it would look like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the next slide. So here's another example. This, this these words equals the, the, the passage right there. He, the thing that's underlined is a comment he makes first. Um, and all this blundering sentences and, in inexcusable repetitions what has the writer said farther than this <laughs> and he, mm -hmm. then he writes it you know like so in the and next that's much line, less oh. than half yeah, yeah. right now, okay. now obviously mt lamb is going to be using the best examples to make his point yeah so well, i wouldn't it, want to use 50 percent or more than 50 percent. let's just yeah. say a third let's say that the ideas produced in the book of mormon could I just say reasonably be written out in a book that's a third the size I said, Not a third the yeah. size, but only two thirds as long as it is now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. So if you go from 180 pages, knock off a third, and a third of 180 is 60, right? 184. 214 minus 30 pages, because for 15 percent for the Bible material, right, leaves 184 minus 
18, so I say very conservative 10% for wordiness. You're you're so, that's even more conservative than I would be, I think, but go ahead. Yeah, but I say 10% because he's using the sermon part, you know, Mm. and there's a historical part might have a harder time doing that with, but so 10%, that'd be 18 pages, that'd be 166 pages, the whole Book of Mormon. The whole Book of Mormon, if you take minus all the stuff Joseph Smith didn't write, this is the stuff Joseph Smith wrote. So I got a dialogue, which is about the same size as my book, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, about the same size this way. And this has 167 pages. Really? And this, yeah. And this this is this is the book. This is what Joseph Smith created right here in uh, 60 days, right? So Joseph Smith filled. A dialogue journal. Well, and he 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 said it twice as you know, ten percent more longer. You know, but if he was literary, if Hemingway wrote the Book of Mormon, let's say this is the way it would have turned out, <laughs> and, and and so it's uh, twenty uh, two thousand seven hundred or four thousand to to four. Let's say twenty-seven hundred to forty-seven hundred words per day. You know, I went with sixty days, although uh, Hale says it's less than eighty-five and possibly as few as fifty-seven days. So I, I went with sixty days. It's usually two months that people quote at two hundred fourteen pages at sixty days would be uh, three and a half pages per day, or as few as two and a half pages per day. Wow. And that's What's doable. What's doing the rest of the time? That's what that's I want to know now. That's doable thinking. Yeah. Uh, working it out in his mind, praying about it, feeling good about it, and then dictating. And he, he doesn't have to dictate, the, uh, the say, the three and a half pages. He doesn't have to do that all in one sitting. You know, he can do a page, whenever he wants. He go, oh, I, you know. I need to take a break and, you know, whatever. You can make excuses to stop and start, stop and start, and uh, do as many as he wants. He's in total control of the whole situation. So he goes out, I have to go out and pray, you know, whatever, and he's praying and maybe out in the woods by himself praying, doing what? Thinking, working it out in his mind. They might be doing other things, working it out in his mind, you know, and um maybe consulting some kind of notes i don't think he had a lot of notes because it seems like a lot of it was uh, not contemplated like i don't think he knew that jesus was coming <laughs> into america when he first started dictating um and that's brent's article uh, in his book on the priority of mosiah shows that the early prophets skipping the first part nephi which was dictated last he already knows the nephi part already knows what happens at the end um but from mosiah on it seems like they don't really know that jesus is coming so some of it joseph smith is creating uh you know as he's going uh, you know of course we know he didn't wasn't working from a manuscript sent you know, reading from behind the curtain and all that kind of stuff that the Spalding people thought because he couldn't replace the uh, 
lost manuscript. So what I'm hearing from this analysis that you've done, Dan, is that Brian Hale's mere statement that there's 200 and was it 60 some odd thousand? To 269,320 word book. Isn't we'll it so yeah. impressive after all, is it? Right. Because when you turn them into pages <laughs> and then you go through your analysis, then you're talking about three and a half pages a day max if he did it all within 60 days. Yeah. So uh, let's go to the next slide for Hale's second uh, thing. So here we go. 207 named characters. It's, it names for primary protagonists in his longer list. He says there's over 100 primary protagonists. That means really? half of them are not primary protagonists. Actually, <laughs> the, this number obscures and inflates the real situation in the Book of Mormon. Use of the term characters is misleading. Most of the characters are mere names. They're just mere names with no character development. Many are mentioned only once. More accurately, uh, wording, the wording would be 207 named people, mm. okay? Because there's a list in, on Wikipedia lists of Book of Mormon people in it in this Wikipedia entry lists the all the names of people in the in the Book of Mormon. Um so if they call them people not characters. So characters makes it sound like it's uh more going on, you know, than there than that is actually going on in the text. So the numbers obscure the quality of character development, which is very little character development in the Book of Mormon. Most are two-dimensional villain and hero caricatures who are all males. That's why I think of it as more like a DC comic than a Marvel comic. <laughs> I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Sorry. That's okay. The intelligent people know. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure Sheldon would know. Um, <laughs> and Brent would know too. <laughs> Brent. Uh, Corey Hor is this is an example of Corey Hor, the Antichrist, being struck mute by the prophet Alma. So I chose these pictures because they're all like grand char characters there, right? And they're mm -hmm. also exaggerated, and all those muscles and things make them look even more fantastic. It's sort of you know what Hales is doing with his list. <laughs> and um, so I think these uh, paintings visually show the exaggerated characters in the Book of Mormon, actually. So that just for fun, the next slide are famous Book of Mormon paintings, but without steroids. Can you see the difference on those, Bill? <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Um, by you David make a good Schnell. point, though. The, the characters Schnell. of the Book of Mormon are very simple. They're very, as you said, two-dimensional. Um, yeah. When I read about Nephi and how he makes decisions, when I, Alma the Elder or Moroni, it, it, they are really basic, not much depth to them. Yeah, the only argument for any depth to any character is Nephi. And the only reason for that is because of the Psalm of Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 4, 
where he is a bit introspective and talking about, I was so angry with my brothers all the time and maybe I shouldn't be such a bad person, but no, I'm okay anyway. That's kind of it. That is the only example of which I'm aware and I've read a number of times, but maybe there's others where there's actually any kind of a depth to any character or introspection or arc for their character instead of they're just there. By the way, the difference in these pictures, I got to tell you, the first pic, the first set of pictures with the muscles, this reminds me of Johnny Romita's Spider-Man as compared to Steve Ditko's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. He who, have, right. he who have so, ears to hear will hear. <laughs> All right, well. One? Yes. All right, this is a little fun. This is a little fun. Uh, contrivance. Evidence of contrivance for the names. Okay. So uh, on the left, we have the Nephite 12 disciples in 3rd Nephi. These are their names. And on the right, we have the Palestinian 12 apostles and their names. And you can see that both lists can include two sets of brothers. Right? Mm -hmm. Two sets of brothers. You think that some justice is following a, pa a pattern of some kind? I mean, what are the chances that the two sets of apostles would have two sets of brothers? Okay. And Simon... Uh, Simon Peter and Andrew were sons of Jonas, according to the New Testament, a name that appears twice in Joseph Smith's list and nowhere else in the Book of Mormon. Wait you know, a second. What are the chances? What are the chances? There's two Jonases? Yeah. So they're well, the, But they're not the Jonas brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no. But you've got two Jonases. Well, the, the, yeah. the New Testament famously has two Judases. Yes. We usually only think of the one because he's the one who gets all the bad press, but there was so another Judas. Judas. He's the one who Judas the, the epistle. Yeah, the Judas epistle of Jude is attributed to. Yeah. So two sets of brothers and two uses of the of the name Jonas, Jonas. in the New Testament also has two sets of brothers and twice uses the name Judas. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so, Simon and Andrew were famously um well, wait a second. Oh, Simon and Andrew were the sons of Jonas. It was James and John yes. who were the sons of uh, Zebedee Thunder. or Bo Boanerges. <laughs> yeah, Zebedee. Right, Zebedee. Zebedee. Okay, and wow. So, so then uh, Timothy and Jonas are Greek names. And that's that a is, problem, I understand. It's a problem. That because they separated from the old world 600 BC. Yeah, well, they say, as some apologists say that the there's a way of uh, answering that but the problem with for me Loose is translation that the um no that there was greek around uh uh palestine at the time or there were they lehi could have been exposed to greek names um mm. so i'm not so sure about that argument I well lehi could have but we're talking about 600 years later in a record where they don't show up at all right well, they it. don't show up no Greek names until you get to the New Testament portion of the Book of Mormon. Then all of a sudden, Greek names appear just like the New like it's New Testament. Are there so any you, new? Are you there think any? Greek Joseph Smith is influenced by uh, the New Testament, and that he's trying to make the New Testament portion of the Book of Mormon feel 
you know, New Testament like. Yeah, that's so interesting know? you say that. And are there any Greek names in the Old Testament? Throwing it out there for anybody who might know, because I don't. Intertestamental, maybe, but Old Testament Hebrew scriptures? Question mark. Uh, don't ask me. But uh, not that old, anyway. Um, so, um, so Timothy, so Timothy and Jonas are Greek names that appear in the New Testament but only appear in 3 Nephi 19.4, nowhere else in the Book of Mormon. Altogether, eight of the 12 names, Timothy, Jonas, twice, Methoni, Methoni, Ha, Kumen, Kumen, On, Pi, and Shemnon, appear nowhere else in the Book of Mormon. Jer Jeremiah, Zedekiah, and Isaiah never appear as Nephite names except in 3 Nephi 19.4. Hmm. In other words, Nephi is the only name of a person that appears elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. Four of the names, hmm. Nephi, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zedekiah, may derive from the fact that Smith was probably beginning to think about the lost beginning part of the Book of Mormon. Note, Laconius is another Greek name that also appears exclusively in the New Testament portion of the Book of Mormon. It appear it remains unexplained why one does not encounter any Greek names in the text until 600 years after Lehi's departure from Jerusalem. A more reasonable explanation is that in narrating events associated with Jesus's birth and earthly ministry, Smith drew upon Greek names as a means of giving his text a New Testament flavor. That is really interesting. I mean, uh, Timothy to my knowledge, is not a Hebrew name. Jonas is the Greek version of a Hebrew name, Jonah, as in the Jonah and the whale. Yeah. So when it's replicated in the New Testament, like when Jesus says, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall be no sign given unto it except the sign of Jonas. He's talking about Jonah. For as Jonah, Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, also the son of man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, etc. But that is Jonas in the New Testament for Jonah in the Old Testament. And now that he is having Jesus appear, we've got 12 apostles in the old world, Nephite disciples. Now they get New Test or they get Greek names. At least some of them do. Jonas twice gets a Greek version of Jonah and Timothy is a completely independent, as far as I know, Greek name showing up in the Nephites for some reason. Right. So also on the list, Methoni and Methoni Ha. So they're related na names. And then Kumen and Kumen on Kumen on High. Okay. So those are related also. So what are the chances that you have like two groups having related names in a 12 name list? To me, it seems more like Joseph Smith is making them up on the spot here. And he's using the New Testament as a pattern. And he's trying to invent names on the fly. Dan, does, does Joseph Smith have any pattern elsewhere of making new names just by adding certain suffixes yeah. and prefixes? That's our, that's our next slide. Oh, what do you know? Thing. Okay, so the, these are a few examples of... Uh, 
inventing names by adding prefixes, suffix, suffixes, and infixes. <laughs> Be careful how you say that last one. So, uh, coriantin, coriantor, coriantum, coriantomer, you know, corihor, cor and is spelled differently. Cor With a K. Coram, kumenai, kumenaiha, pakumenai, kumen, oh. kumen on high, kishkumen, then there's like morianto, moriankumer, morientin, morientum, mormon, moron, moroni, moroni, huh? You know, you can see the pattern, you know, like how he's inventing names that are related to each other, you know, Nias, Nihor, Nephi, Nephi, Niam, Zenephi, Zenephi. I think that's how you say it. Who knows? <laughs> so you get the idea. And then the next slide is uh, one that where Edward Ashman really showed this. Uh, so Edward Ashman. Uh, who was a student of Egyptology uh, before he disappeared. <laughs> and um, so Edward Ashman, if those names which parallel are uh, or are derived from biblical names are set aside, Book of Mormon names are built out of relatively few stems, some used extensively to which one or more affixes from eight classes have been added to create a new name. These combinations generate 136 Book of Mormon names for which it is difficult to justify an ancient origin. Of course, we have the Onomasticon people that are searching high and low for anything near or close to. They're playing that the name game, which is very easy to do. This is really remarkable to me, Dan, as I see this broken down the way you've done it and the way Ed Ashman did, because it's almost like if you had a a wheel, you know, they have some things that the, <laughs> yeah. you have different things that'll put together a sentence and you have different yeah. words that it just puts in randomly and they come up with funny sentences or maybe insulting yeah. sentences or something. But now you just got the, the prefix, the stem, and for every stem, you can add prefixes or or suffixes and all of a sudden now you're generating all these different names which end up being used apparently in the book of mormon yep and he's influenced by the bible i mean how hard could it be to take three consonants and put vowels in there different vowels and change them around and stuff but so edward ashman why did you say he disappeared what did you mean by that <laughs> well he was really involved in mormon studies for a uh, time and then he decided not to pursue the academic life and you know he had a family responsibilities and things and so he unfortunately because <laughs> i thought he was really quite good um kind of dropped out of uh, being a real active scholarly uh contributor to Mormon studies. Gotcha. And, and then so, I wanted to show, you said there's a connection between Joseph Smith's awareness of like the Bible and the book of Mormon. I just want to throw a couple little things. Hopefully it'll let me put this up. Okay. Mormon chapter nine, verse 24 is almost identical to Mark chapter 16, 17 and 18. That should not be. We should not find new Testament scriptures in the book of Mormon. And yet we do. Uh, especially 
especially Mark 16. Yeah, especially Mark 16, which is part of the Bible that wasn't part of the original Bible and was (laughs) later added. But it gets worse than that. Look at Paul and Moroni. So in AD 54, Paul in the New Testament writes something. In AD 421, Moroni writes almost the same ideas, one after the other in order. Yeah. To me, no loose translation could answer anything like that. Yeah, and you know the apologist. It's answer going is way that, beyond any definition of translation that I know of. Yeah, the the apologist answer is that God is speaking to two different people, and why can't He give them the same idea? But man, when you yeah. read this and you see how similar it is, you are stretching the the rational mind to its extreme, and it doesn't end there. Um, Jacob chapter four. Oh, that that's something different. That's just talking about how in one instance. It's so hard to write upon the plates that they don't want to say much. And then in other instances, they tell you every single year that passes away with nothing happening, <laughs> right? So that's yeah. contradictory. But there's other ones. Second Nephi chapter 9, Romans chapter 8. Uh, there's a scripture that is overlapping. Again, for anybody who's listening who believes the Book of Mormon to be a divine ancient text, you really have to sit down and deal with why there is New Testament scriptures scattered throughout the Book of Mormon, such makes zero sense. I'm going to see if there was one other one. No, that's by the way, Bill, can you go to the last one? It's short enough. Let's go ahead and read that at least for the audience who's listening only. Yeah, uh, so the first second, one from third. Go ahead. Yeah, Second Nephi chapter nine verse thirty nine. Remember, to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Romans chapter eight verse six. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So and somebody and again, says to Joseph, Oliver says, aren't you like copying from the Bible? And Joseph says, what, are you kidding? Romans says, and peace. I'm saying life eternal. They're completely different. Yeah. Life and peace, life eternal. Yeah. But you'll be peaceful in your eternal life too, though. I know. Isn't that incredible? That is exactly like the kind of thing I would have done in 10th grade. When I was plagiarizing the heck out of famous authors, I this would change a word plagiarism. or two and say, hey, this is totally new. Yeah, look at the screen. I mean, anybody watching this who is a believer, look at the screen and explain why Mark chapter 16, 17, and 18, which is a late insert after the original book of Mark, and it somehow finds its way into the book of Mormon, Mormon chapter 9, verse 24. Such is absurd. Can I just mention here, and I know we're going to get through all these slides tonight. But this is the kind of thing that the Book of Mormon does that forces Mormons into abandoned scholarly positions. Okay? So there's an abandoned scholarly position that Mark, uh, the long ending of Mark, that it was original to Mark. So it gets copied in the Book of Mormon. Later on, they realize, wait a second, based upon the textual and manuscript evidence, we don't see this long inning showing up until hundreds of years later. It was obviously added on to the end of Mark, which is the very predominant, not universal, almost universal position of New Testament scholars. This is a long inning. It wasn't there originally. Because of the Book of Mormon and because it has the long inning quoted, it forces Mormon scholars to defend an abandoned biblical position. They have to defend the idea that the long ending of Mark was original to Mark in the face of all the scholars who've moved on from that position and contradict that position based upon the evidence. Same thing happens with um, 
uh, the book of Isaiah. So basically everybody understands now that there's a second Isaiah, probably a third Isaiah, different authors living after Isaiah and after the Levites, or not the Levites, the Lehites, Nephites, left Jerusalem, okay? Their little band of Book of Mormon authors leave Jerusalem 600 BC. Then you've got second Isaiah writing. Then you've got third Isaiah writing after that. The problem now is, is that that can't be because the Book of Mormon quotes not only from first Isaiah passages, but also from second Isaiah passages. So it forces Book of Mormon scholars into the position of having to defend the unity of all 66 chapters of Isaiah and argue that it is all of one piece and all written by the original Isaiah around 721 BCE. And I think Abraham Gileadi was forced into that position. I think he wrote a lot about the unity of Isaiah. But this is what the Book of Mormon does to biblical scholars who are also Mormon, is they have to now defend old discarded theories because the Book of Mormon doesn't allow them to move on and catch up with the evidence. But even if Mark chapter 16, verse 17 and 18 were in the original Mark, remember that the Hebrew is translated into Greek, is translated into English, and somehow this completely separate people has one of its ancient authors writing the exact same scripture down on the gold plates in the exact same order, in the exact same fashion. Even if this chapter, if this ver these verses were in the original Mark, this is absurd to find them in both places. And again, as you're pointing out, it wasn't in the original Mark. And that and is, is every, I... yeah, that's the prevailing biblical opinion, of a uh, scholarly opinion held by almost everyone in the field. I agree with you. Uh, the fact that it's the long ending, which is not original, that's being quoted from is just the cherry on top. But about 10 years ago, I wrote an article where I finally had to admit to myself and I put it on in writing on a blog that this is the smoking gun mm -hmm. on the Book of Mormon that I think proves indisputably that it is a product of early 19th century America. Give Brother Joseph not an a break. Text. Oh, what? Give Brother Joseph a break. <laughs> so somebody put that in the comments. And I knew I had the sound by here. <laughs> um, yeah, th this is not being dealt with. This is why, by the way, to the believer again, this is why Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, uh, and, and tons of Richard Bushman and tons of other scholars on the, on the front edge of this are saying, we have to, on some level, abandon this as an ancient translation. And we now need to make room that Joseph is incorporating tons of things from 19th century material and other materials accessible to him. And that is one batch of new Mormon apologists who I think are neo-apologists. They're trying to grapple with the evidence, come to uh, reasonable conclusions based upon it that you cited to. But then there's those others, right? There's um, the uh, Corbridge maneuver, Elder Corbridge. There's um, Jason Hansen. The collective there's witness model. Kyle McKay. There's uh, now Brian Hales, who want to come up with ways to defend the Book of Mormon without ever dealing with any of these issues. Yeah. And Brian Hales knows these issues just as well as you or I know them, Bill. He knows these issues. He knows the long ending is a huge problem. But what he wants to do is pretend that it's not there, come out with where did all the words come from, and look at all these big numbers, 
and try and wow the yokels so that they will not have a chance and hopefully not even have the knowledge to say, well, what about the Book of Mormon quoting from the long ending of Mark? Because this once you the... ask that question, all the numbers evaporate. They're meaningless. Yeah. yeah. It's the reason why Brian tells Michelle Stone that we, we're not allowed to have these conversations in the public arena because Brian knows as well as anybody that if you and I sat down with him, if Dan Vogel sat down with him and we asked these pointed questions about things like why New Testament is in the Book of Mormon, their answers are going to be far less rational than the critics saying it's because it's just made up. And I do think it would be fair at this point to say, Brian, um, we know you're watching. Mm -hmm. We know you're listening where people are reporting back to you. Uh, we want to extend you an invitation to come on the show so yeah. we can ask you these questions and maybe not even any more, maybe a few more, I don't know, but ask you the questions because we want to know from you how you explain the Book of Mormon authors quoting from people and authors who did not exist in 600 BC and their writings did not exist in 600 BC and the Nephites had no way of accessing their writings since they're on the other side of the world with a couple of big oceans depending upon which way you go in between. And what do you make of that? Why is that there? And how does that fit your theory that the Book of Mormon in its totality is an inspired translation of an ancient record of people who lived in the new world? Right. I, I, I hope Brian takes us up on that. I don't expect it to happen. Red carpet I'd is rolled out for you, Brian. Yeah. Okay I'll, okay, I'll get off my little soapbox. Wait, we have a guest. It's Dan Vogel. Look, Dan Vogel's on the show tonight. Dan, could you continue with your excellent exegesis? I thought I was watching. Okay, uh, <laughs> so um, the next slide. Okay, that this is a pseudo-Egyptian names from the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. These are all names that Joe Smith invented, sort of. Some of them are Hebrew, but he invented all these names while he's dictating the, uh, tra the translation of the uh, papyri. So he's showing he has the ability to make up names at will, almost. So then it, we shouldn't be impressed, maybe, too much by the names he's inventing in the Book of Mormon, because right after the Book of Mormon, he just keeps on going inventing names. <laughs> this is fascinating to me. I love this chart, Dan. Did you put this together? Yeah. It's just incredible, because what you're showing is that in 1835, and probably again in 1843 or so, when Joseph Smith is working on the, the Egyptian papers, the Abraham Egyptian papers, the grammar and alphabet of the English language, he's coming up with all these names as well. And I get around 88 names in that chart that you came up with. You can go ahead and count and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but it's around 88 names that he comes up with yeah. off the top of his head. Now, the one thing we can guarantee you is that they're not Egyptian. Apologies to Dr. Gee, but the truth hurts. They're not Egyptian. They came out of Joseph Smith's head. And if Joseph Smith can manufacture a list like this of around 88 names of places, things that don't even show up. Most of them don't even show up in the book of Abraham. He's just using this as some kind of a, um, what would you call it, Dan? Some kind of uh, preliminary piece? Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, he's just listing characters and giving uh, definitions, but and names, definitions. Uh, right. He come. He can come up with these at the drop of a hat. If he can do it here, why couldn't he have done the same thing with the Book of Mormon, which I think is the bottom line on this? Right. So if so, you know, I, I, Joseph Smith did do the translation in the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, but if some apologist wants to argue that no, it was Phelps. Well, then you have the problem of Phelps being able to do what Joseph Smith did in the Book of Mormon. So that even makes it even more complicated. But Joseph Smith is responsible for the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Um, so the names, this concludes my discussion of the names. But the point here is that how impressed should we be, you know, by these numbers that Hale uh, puts out? about how complex the Book of Mormon is and it's beyond just miscibility when I'm showing he's doing it uh, in, in another place. Yeah, what you're showing is that the Book of Mormon and the numbers that Brian gives, inflated though they may be, are completely within his ability to do. That's right. Okay, so the next slide is the next uh, Hale's thing. is uh, He says there's 77 storylines in the Book of Mormon or episodes so of course you wouldn't have a book if you didn't have storylines <laughs> so every book has storylines and episodes and things so we do know joe smith was a storyteller and we this is the famous quote from lucy smith that everybody uh quotes is during our evening conversations joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined he would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent their dress, mode of travel, and the animals upon which they rode. Their cities, their buildings, with every particular. Their mode of war warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he spent his whole life with them. Okay, so. Do we know what year she's claiming this happened? 1823, I think. Yeah, 1823. This is before, before Alvin died. Before mm -hmm. Alvin, yeah, before Alvin died, but as I'm going to go on to explain, Joseph Smith is a storyteller. This isn't the only thing he's talking about the plates and making up stories about the plates. He's he's making up all sorts of stories about pirates and treasures and you know things like that. It, it's just one more story that he's been telling. Uh, he told many stories, stories about pirates, about two Indians burying a treasure and one killing the other, about seeing plates in the hill showing uh, showing them to uh, Samuel Lawrence, the seer, about being attacked by uh, something like a toad, <laughs> about being attacked by some ruffians and injuring his thumb. He didn't stop telling stories once the Book of Mormon was published. He told stories about Enoch and his city being translated into heaven, of Melchizedek's life, of Adam being blessing his posterity in the valley of Adam on Diamond, of Zelf, the white Lamanite, serving under the prophet Onandagus, of the angel named Moroni visiting him in his room, of the moon being inhabited, of one of the mummies being King Onidas, and another, his daughter, Ketuman of the papyri being records of Joseph and Abraham, of the skeleton discovered in Kinderhook, Illinois, being one of the Jaredites and receiving a kingdom from God. The numbers hide 
reality, the reality of the Book of Mormon, many of the stories are taken out of the Bible in disguised form, like Paul on the road to Damascus being similar to Alma, the Younger's conversion story, dancing for the head of John the Baptist, like the daughter of Jared dancing for the head of Omer, Jesus raising Lazarus and Ammon. Some stories are disguised autobiography. Many of the stories are plausible, implausible, contradictory, incomplete, or downright silly. Uh, Smith borrowed uh, the biggest story of the Book of Mormon is the white race of Christian agriculturalists who were annihilated in the Great Lakes region by the ancestors of the Indians or the Mound Builder myth, eight barges floating across the sea full of people, seeds, and animals turning and twisting in the water and all landing together. That's eight times as miraculous as the story of Noah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's one thing the Reverend Lamb talks about is how the Book of Mormon outdo does the uh, Bible <laughs> and the Bible miracles. Um, Nephi beheading. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. No, no, you go ahead. In Nephi beheading Laban and putting on his bloody armor and Zoram not even noticing it. Both Jaredites and Nephites being annihilated on the very same hill. This is B.H. Roberts wrote about it in his study, uh, Book of Mormon study. Is all this sober history inspired, written, and true, representing things that actually happen? Or is it a wonder tale of an immature mind? unconscious of what a test he is laying on human credulity when asking men to accept his narrative as solemn history. The 2,000 young stripling warriors fighting for 13 years and not one of them being killed. Not one. <laughs> no. No gangrene, no nothing. Nothing. And B.H. Roberts wrote about that. Beautiful story of faith. Is it history? Or is it a wonder tale of a pious but immature mind? Mm. So and Brian Hales might want to take my first biography, The Making of a Prophet, and look up in the index under in the Book of Mormon under narrative incongruities. And you'll see quite a few 20, 30 examples of parts of the narrative of the Book of Mormon that just do not jibe with each other and do not make any sense. So throw out the numbers, but when you the numbers are hiding the reality of what's in the Book of Mormon. And I, when you get to the nitty-gritty of it, it's sure high numbers, but it's doesn't hold up really. It's not all that impressive. One could almost say that Brian Hales is actively trying to keep his audience from seeing the forest for the trees. Yeah, well, he's just doing a version of Nibley's challenge uh, that Nibley put out probably 50 or more years ago. You know? mm -hmm. um, What's more likely that Moroni, because Moroni is only visited in the three times in the night and then once the next morning, right? 1823. Mm -hmm. That's the first that's the first year Moroni visits. Correct. So. Am I saying that right? 1820 yes. was the first vision, 1823, first visit by Moroni. So yes. what's more likely that Moroni took time in those visits to tell Joseph about the mode of traveling 
the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare and also their religious worship? Or is the other thing more likely, which is that Joseph Smith is a really good storyteller and he's already working out the details of the Book of Mormon? Right. And what you're riffing on and responding to, I think, Bill, is the common apologetic response to what Lucy Max Smith had to say, which is that Joseph isn't making it up. He's got to be getting it from somewhere. And the only place that he would obviously be getting it from is Moroni. So Moroni must be telling him about this stuff. And when you find out that actually she wrote this about Joseph before Alvin died, which was in November of 1823, Dan? Uh, 19th of November, 1823. Okay. So there's only one visit of Moroni. It's the first visit. There's only one time he could be getting this information from Moroni. So even though Joseph Smith writes in some detail about Moroni's several visits and all that Moroni does is say, hey, there's gold plates nearby. And then he quotes a bunch of verses and chapters from the Old Testament. The apologetic argument then becomes, okay, well, in addition to that, Moroni must have told him all about the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of traveling, because when you're an angel sent from heaven, these are the kind of details you're going to focus on. In a Bill. bedroom where all the rest of your brothers are also <laughs> yeah. sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the next one. Oh, geography. We're talking about... So there's uh, 149 geographic locations, but as you know, it, they're just so vague and generally fit into all sorts of different patterns and things, uh, different kinds of geography. Um, the other side, the other side is J.R.R. Tolkien, Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. That's his. That's his geography for his book. Pretty complex too, huh? <laughs> It's just uh, just as imaginative, um, but um, so most of the most of the 149 geographic locations are uh, mere names without geographic, you know, any specific thing other than in the land southward, or you know, in the land of Nephi or land of Zarahemla or desolation. None have been none have been located. I mean, that's a pretty significant. Uh, thing to uh, remember besides members. Um, many proposed geographies, both general and specific, there are many different kinds that get very heartland model or whatever. Obviously, nobody's been able to find a geography in the first place. But um, the truth of it is that the Book of Mormon is hemispheric, but it just doesn't it doesn't work right. <laughs> for a real for a real history it's just too too big of course but joe smith didn't know that i mean all the early mormons didn't think it was ridiculous to think that it was the whole hemisphere i did you know? when i joined the church and everybody else in the church that i knew believed the same thing and so did i it's obvious they still believe it yeah the average the average member still thinks hemispheric yeah. You know, so it doesn't hurt anybody. When, when it first started occurring was the Reverend Lamb. Reverend oh, Lamb. really? Yeah, he's the first guy, 1887, to point out Orson Pratt's geography in the footnotes in the 1879 Book of Mormon are far-fetched, along with a lot of far-fetched stories in the Book of Mormon. And so he started criticizing the geography, and they started looking for a smaller area. Mm. 
Because he was right. Because <laughs> he was right, yeah. You can't have the, the Book of Mormon set in all of North and South America and have it make any sense with the vast distances that have to be covered. Is that all it? All of that. All, just uh, the the actual history, you know, the other writing problem, and all that kind of stuff. But the other problem they ran into was that there was nothing in the Hill Cumorah, right? Like, so it's <laughs> not just it's not just the geography of the hemispheric model didn't work. It's that when believers went to the Hill Cumorah with whatever tools they did in the early history of the church trying to find things, or when advanced technology allowed LIDAR and other, other technology to try to discover stuff, it was it was discovered pretty quickly that there's not a damn shred of Book of Mormon anything in the Hill Cumorah in New York. So you have to move it, but you moved it to a place where there's not one shred of evidence that it took place there either, other than it slightly fits better in terms of geography, but we still don't know where that Hill Cumorah is. Nobody has Vigia. a hill picked out. Isn't it a V-I-G-I-A? That's a proposed location in Southern yeah. Mexico, I think it is. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, but it's, it fits it better because it's bigger. Yeah, it's bigger for It can actually contain the numbers battle. of people that are described as being on it in the Book of Mormon. But yeah, not nowhere is there a million people died in battle on any freaking hill no. in this entire two continents, you know? No, the Book of well, Mormon they, picked the wrong hill yeah. to die on. <laughs> but they uh, could ima they could imagine it. Cowdery wrote about it in the Messenger Navigate. He imagined it could have happened in that area. It wasn't beyond his thinking and the the book of mormon's hemispheric because the mound builder myth was hemispheric ah, okay yeah the mound builder myth has the it comes starts in peru and it works like a chain of uh, ruins and things up through central and south central america and southern uh, mexico and up through um the the plains which were the land desolation that used to have forests on them, but did no longer because of the inhabitants, as mentioned in the Book of Helaman. And then the final, final battle scene, well, as the Mount Builder myth theorists believed, the final battle scenes were in the Great Lakes region, hmm. particularly Western New York. Yeah. I'll so, tell you, these... If you're done with that thought, I just want to mention that okay, these two ahead. maps together from Joseph Smith and J.R.R. Tolkien make me think of the line, in the land of Nephi, where the shadows lie. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank One you. ring to rule them all. Okay. So that's for, so we have geography, uh, 149 geographic names just really isn't that significant. It's a larger problem with the Book of Mormon. Okay, next to slide, 45 socio-geographic groups. It's hard not to mention <laughs> racism when you talk about socio-geographic groups in the Book of Mormon. How a Jew Jewish colony described as white and delightsome arrived in the New World, and half of them rebel and magically turn dark. Then, at the time of Christ, they all become white again and were no longer divided into tribes until 200 years later, half apostatize and become ethnically divided and turn dark again. But Hales wants to uh, focus on how many socio-geographic groups there are and not talk about what the book actually says. 
Right. And this picture, is this from a children's edition of the Book of Mormon? <laughs> Probably. I just it got, looks like I a Nephite explaining to a Lamanite why his dark skin is a curse. <laughs> if you just would have been faithful. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you would only <laughs> repent, you could look like me and wear this really cool hat. Well, and the Lamanite has a knife and the and the. I know. I mean, I look at this as a kid. I look at this as a 63-year-old guy, and I think the Lamanite looks way cooler than this other guy who looks like a refugee from the original Star Trek series. <laughs> so there's more I could say about the groups, but the groups... Uh, Is that Barley only... they're planning behind them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's only four main main <laughs> groups in the Book of Mormon: the Nephites, Lamanites, Jaredites, and Mulekites. But Actually, Bill, they're pulling it out of the ground, which is why we can't find it. Yeah, that's it. Get, let's get rid of the evidence, everyone. <laughs> Everybody, pull up the barley. <laughs> oh. okay. okay, this is what happened last time, and then the okay, hurricanes so, came, and we lost Dan. Yeah, so Dan, continue, so, please. The curse. Yeah. Um, the so the, most of the groups are only mentioned in lists, and we know nothing about Jacobites and Josephites. Let's say, right? It's Somebody's asking Dan, is that is that cheetah fur on the guy? Yeah. So you know he he uh, has animal skins. The other guy has woven the, clothes. It's be yeah, but animal skins a lot of animals that don't exist in a hemispheric yeah. model of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Might as well be Africa, right? <laughs> Does he have a bolo uh, or a rope next to his dagger? What is that? Yeah, it's the it lasso like of a, truth yeah. of Wonder Woman. <laughs> it looks like a whip. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, you know, these artists, they've got to do something. They have no direction from the first presidency. They're out there just making up their pictures willy-nilly. Damn, those damn artists. It's always <laughs> those <fault>. rogue artists. <laughs> All right, Dan, sorry there. We're getting a little too out of hand here. <laughs> okay, so um, the point is, is that there's a lot more uh, going on when you throw out a number, like 140, you know, 45 socio-geographic groups. There's a, there's, there's a lot going on and, and the number is padded. Hmm because most of them are just in a list and never, we don't know anything about them. Um, so next slide. Good. Cause I was about to ask whether this Lamanite is taking his yellow blankie and making a cape out of it. It looks like he's trying to be Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Boy Scouts, Boy Scout scarf or something. Oh my gosh. Okay. Next slide. Definitely. All right. <laughs> Okay, so we uh, Hale's next point is that we have 63 sermons comprising over 87,000 words. In his longer list, it's 68 major sermons, more minor ser other minor sermons, uh, topics, dozens. Sermon, comment uh, sermon commentary, often intricate and multifaceted. Nothing could be easier for Joseph Smith to produce than sermons. <laughs> Had, what was it he was doing all the time, as often as occasion would permit, according to his 1838 account of the Book of Mormon, even when he was 14? Attending during revivals. This time of, yeah, during this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. 
And though as often as occasion would permit, yeah. Anyway. By the way, sermon topics, dozens, that's bogus. <laughs> There's a handful, maybe half yeah. a dozen at most. So I, major I, ones. I say it, it's hard to imagine a person raised in New York's burned over district who had deeply religious parents who attended revivals, who participated as a Methodist exhorter, who planned to become religious leader himself, being unable to sermonize. Not to mention that these sermons, despite displaying at times a simple eloquence, are nevertheless didactic and strongly reflect the revival language of Smith's environment. As a Methodist exhorter, he had a working knowledge of what makes a sermon more like two and a half minute talks right? You know, than an actual sermon. A spiritual uh, most, thought. Yeah, mostly simple uh, Pentecostal-like exhortations about faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. Subjects were... <laughs> hang on, hang on a second. Dan, Dan, I love you dearly, but Doug Bowen just made a comment. Are you sure you have this number right from, from Brian Hales? Because Doug Bowen says that the number of major sermons at 68 exceeds the total number of sermons at 63. 63 sermons comprising oh, 87,000 yeah. words, 68 major sermons, plus yeah. more minor Th ones. Thank you. Yes, th this is true, Doug. Um, <laughs> in he, other words, in, Brian Hales is just making it up. <laughs> well, in his, yeah, in his review, he gave the 63 number. Uh, but in his longer list that on that red placard thing, <laughs> it says 68 major, more minor. Yeah, that is a discrepancy. There are other discrepancies uh, in number-wise. I think he's trying to just remember them. He must have been mad or something, just fired them off. But <laughs> so um, anyway, the subjects uh, that the Book of Mormon touches on Alexander Campbell said were common things that were being discussed around, you know, when, uh, when doctrine is discussed uh, at all in these sermons, uh, it, it was those that were debated in the 19th century, like anti-universalism, anti-infant baptism, anti-Catholic and Godhead, mm -hmm. the deepest uh, doctrinal, Discussion is on modalism, right? <laughs> you know, Mosiah fifteen, can, yeah, considered a heresy uh, among all the other Christians. So, one sermon, one of those sixty-eight sermons, I guess, came right out of the New Testament, called the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> which is a problem. So, the numbers again hide a problem, hide problems. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith wasn't impressed by these sermons because he never quoted them afterward. Right. You know, so that's all I have to say about that. And then next slide. Yeah. What is this? 100 distinct titles for God. Brian Hale says that about the Book of Mormon, huh? Yeah. Are any of them found uh, in the Book of Mormon, but not in the Bible? I don't think so. But, uh, Maybe, but they would be also common among most Christians anyway. But Jesus Christ, right? Right in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so it is based. It is based on Susan Easton Black Easton Blacks. Oh, I knew uh, she'd show up somewhere in all this. 
100 names of Christ in the Book of Mormon, in the Enzyme, 1978. So I think that's where Brian got this. Many come from quotes out of the King James Version of the Bible, when the Bible's just, you know, the adjustment's just quoting Isaiah, like Isaiah 9, 6, where it says that, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There, one verse, you got five. <laughs> no new titles. Names on the tip of every Christian's tongue, especially in the 19th century. Like Alpha and Omega, Beloved Son, Creator, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ Jehovah, Lord, Lord God, Lord Jehovah, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he's padding all this stuff. I mean. How can you be impressed? Yeah, there's even Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Jehovah. <laughs> um, there are actually, you can go and um, in BYU study site and find uh, over 150 names and titles of Christ from the Bible. So there's more in the Bible than there is in the Book of Mormon. Um you can have you can also see they have lists on the internet of a thousand titles of God series and okay that's that's good for that we're not we're not impressed so we'll move on um here we go uh over 170 new non-english proper nouns invented proper nouns okay of the Book of Mormons, 337 proper names, 188 are unique to the Book of Mormon, according to the Book of Mormon onomasticon. Uh, many appear only once, like the Lyahona, Ramiumton, Iriantum, uh, Deseret, Gazalum, Curliums, Kumams, etc. Some are unique names to, of people. Joseph Smith had the ability to, to invent names, whether it be people, places, things. My theory is that this ability lies in the gift of tongues. You know, let me explain. Please do. So the, the next slide. Gift of tongues. Glossolalia. The tongues of angels, the pure language, pure Adamic language, spoken by early church members, mm -hmm. spoken by Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, W.W. Phelps, and others, a feature of the Kirtland Endowment. You can read about this uh, myself and Scott Dunn in 1993, published in the Journal of Mormon History, mm. the tongue of angels, glossolalia among founding Mormons. So there's right. a whole history of how the early Mormons spoke in tongues. And, and a reference to the tongue of angels appears in 2 Nephi, I believe. That's right. When you come out of the waters of baptism, you shall speak with the tongue of angels and sing uh, praise the praises of Jesus. I forget exactly the wording. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's in there. And uh, early Mormons expected to speak in tongues as a sign of that they had been baptized with authority. Um, 
So there's something by Bruce R. McConkie, a quote from his Mormon doctrine. I hear that Bill Real does a fabulous Bruce R. McConkie. <laughs> you want it right here? Right now. Right here, right In now. In the beginning, God gave Adam language that was pure, perfect and undefiled. This Adamic language, now unknown, was far superior to any tongue which is presently extant. This... We, you know, we got uh, Jacob Hansen to admit that this was ridiculous. We got Jacob Hansen to admit that the Mormon meaning more good was ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. To have the Adamic language, what is the name of God? Amen. What is the name of the Son of God? The Son, English, Amen. What are angels called in the pure language? Amen, Engelsman. <laughs> it's absurd. Joseph Smith is making it all up. That's why I wanted to show this slide because you're talking about how he's making it all up. He's yeah. making it all up. And he shows over and over again he has the skill to do that. And you got Jacob Hansen to admit this was absurd in the third and final conversation he was willing to have with you about Mormonism. Is that correct, Bill? When he chose the first, the topics for the first three and refuses to let me choose the topics for anything after. Ah, got yeah. it. Hmm. Yeah, I think you toasted him quite nicely on that third episode. Yeah. So he doesn't want to do it again unless he controls the narrative. So the gift of tongues, let's see, I think we're on the next one. Yeah. Uh, so it's real. It's a real thing. It's uh, scientists have studied it. And you don't have to be like crazy or anything or, or abnormal. It, it, you, it's a learned ability, but they uh, do brain scans during uh, tongue speaking, and it show uh, so neural imaging of brain activity during glossolalia does not show activity in the language areas of the brain. It comes from a different area. In other words, it may be characterized by a specific brain activity, and it can be a learned behavior. That's from Wikipedia. Yeah. The authoritative source. So I'm saying it's real. And that the definition of glossolalia, one definition used by linguists is the fluid vocalization of speech-like syllables that lack any readily comprehended meaning. So my theory is that Joe Smith tapped into this learned ability to invent language to make up words. Makes sense to me. That's how he did it in the Book of Mormon, how he had the ability to do that. Um, so and next slide. So here we have Adam naming the animals, <laughs> right? Um, Edemic words. Here's some. This is from early Mormon history. Zomar which means Zion in the original language. Where does that come from, Zomar? Ezra Booth. Um, Mormonism number six, Ohio Star, 17th of November, 1831. This is one of his letters when he went to, to, to Missouri with Joseph Smith in 1831 and kind of got disillusioned during the process. Well, they picked out the spot for the temple to be built and on a tree they carved the word zomar which means zion in the original language 
Well, what do you know? And it's also so, hold on. So billions, so whatever, whatever the original language was, how long ago? Yeah. And all the transmutations of language. Yeah. And somehow all these words just so happened to sound almost like the word they came from and to start with the same letter. It's just so cool, you know. I just I'm just deeply intrigued here. I love it. So what, what I'm showing is that Joseph Smith, after the Book of Mormon, he had this uh, fascination fascination with the Adamic language, which came out of tongue speaking. So when I, I imagine when they spoke in tongues, people paid attention to some of the words and then mm. somebody would interpret and they were building a vocabulary of Adamic words. And then the papyri came along. And they were writing these Adamic words down with symbols and everything, little characters. And they transferred this writing. Remember the W.W. Phelps letter to his wife before yes. the papyri were even uh, purchased or even brought into town. They were creating these Adamic words with characters and they put it into to the Egyptian alphabets. Right. So in that the Egyptian uh, papyri were a continuation of that project. So I imagine that project was going on when they were trying to recreate the Adamic language, which was a pastime <laughs> pursued by a lot of believers because they mm -hmm. believe that um, in the end, you know, there's a prophecy in Zephaniah about uh, restoring the pure tongue, restoring the pure tongue once again in uh you know, when the Messiah returns. So this is what they were trying to do is restore this Adamic language. The thing that's really interesting to me about this is he's got the Valley of Adam on Diama. Now, Adam in the presence of God, right? Is basically the interpretation, as I understand it. Adam means Adam, Amon means God, and Andai means something connecting the two. And I think it's in the presence of. Yeah. But having established, and I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg on this, but he's established God's name or God, the word God in Adamic as Amen. And then he will use that to say Amen is God. And what is Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. So he's the son Amen. And what about mankind? Well, mankind is the sons of God. So they're sons Amen. And then you get to angels and that gets a little difficult. So we'll just go with Anglo man. Yeah. There they are, the same ones that Bill showed earlier. Um, right. So they're toying around with the Adamic language. The Adamic language is the gift of tongues. He's making up names with this gift. And the mountains of Olaha Shiniha. Yeah. The Don't tell me that's Olaha not Adamic. Shiniha. Yes, it's like mutual of Olaha's wild kingdom. And, and that... That appeared uh, before it was appeared in the later chapters of the Book of Abraham that were dictated in Nauvoo. This is eighteen. That's an 1838 revelation that mentions mm -hmm. Adam on and the mountains of Olaha Shinaha. So there. So. Tongues is associated with Joseph Smith's ability to make up words, which he continued to do after the Book of Mormon. Just kept on going. <laughs> you know? And so uh, the 
what he was doing in the Book of Mormon wasn't all that extraordinary. He just kept on going. Right. So this is the story behind Brian Hale's number defense. Yeah. Of names. So is it beyond just mystability? No. Does it, you know, the Book of Mormon might be more complex, but Joseph Smith is the one that made it up. So it's we not complex make to the him. Book of Mormon name wheel to come up with most of the names in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, you could probably do that. Or Scrabble. <laughs> you know, the consonants and vowels in one hat and vowels in another, and you pull consonant, a vowel, consonant, a vowel. <laughs> you get your new name. Yes. Yeah, so um next slide. Oh, here we are. There's the tenor's book. Oh oh. This is the one I don't like, Dan. Why? Because this is something that Brian Hale said in his review of your book. Oh, yes. Where he says, in the midst of a bunch of numbers, he gives this squirrely as hell statement where he says not a single full sentence of his original dictation has been edited since the publication of the first book of Mormon. Not a single full sentence of his, what does that mean? I already know that there's 4,000 changes in the book of Mormon. And I know that the vast majority of them are for grammar, spelling, syntax, what have you. There are a couple that have theological meanings, changing son of God or changing Jesus being God to being the son of God, there's a Benjamin to a Mosiah or vice versa. But I know, and I've known since before I went on my mission, that there's upwards of 3,000 changes in the text of the Book of Mormon. So not knowing anything else about Brian Hales or anything else about his argument, when he sticks in there the squirrely statement that not a single full sentence of his original dictation has been edited, I don't know what that means. But I don't know how you could have a single word in a single full sentence that's changed and it doesn't change the full sentence in which that word that was changed is embedded. So when I know that, I know that Brian Hales is playing fast and loose and he's not giving it to me straight, which immediately casts everything else he says in doubt as far as I'm concerned. I cannot trust him. He's proven it to me with this one statement. Yeah. Yeah. Full, no, not one full sentence. Well, and it didn't have sentences in the beginning, but which sentences? Right, the ones the that one. the printer put in? <laughs> I mean, look at the face of this guy, Brian. Would you buy a used car from him? Would you let him put you under anesthesia? <laughs> so... There's about 20 uh, changes that uh, are changes in uh, theology and fact, like Benjamin, Benjamin de Mosiah, or is it the other way around? In well, right. Either. So let's just take that one, okay? Where it's just changes from Benjamin Mosiah. Yeah. Okay. He, he forgot he killed off Benjamin. Right. And so he uses Benjamin's name, but by then Benjamin's dead and it should have been Messiah. Right. So that's one. And they changed it back. I mean, they did change it away from the original 1830 version because it made sense. So let's talk about that one, okay? Just one. That one change from Benjamin to Mosiah or vice versa. I'm going to say that the change of that one name did actually 
change a single full sentence of Joseph's original <laughs> dictation. It was edited. And therefore, what he is telling me there, according to its straightforward meaning, is incorrect. He is shinahawing me on. <laughs> and I know that if we had him on the show, he's got some special recondite explanation and interpretation yeah. of what he means by that sentence. Yeah, but what is what does it mean? I've got <laughs> yeah. no idea. I'm just sure that he how, has some kind of explanation. How can, you, how can you change a full sentence? You can delete it, <laughs> but how do you change a full sentence? I would think that if you change a sentence, you're changing the full sentence. Yeah. I mean, I'm just a small town lawyer and everything, so maybe I don't understand it. But I think that this is what whatever his backup position may be, assuming he has a backup position. And I think I know Brian well enough to know he's got a fallback position on this. Whatever his fallback position is, he's trying to give a false impression with this statement. Yeah. Hoping that his audience does not know about the 3,913 changes in the Book of Mormon and therefore will not be able to push back on him with that inconvenient truth. Yeah. So, and if you count everything, some people have counted it, punctuation and everything, it comes out mm -hmm. to be 105,000 changes, I, I guess, from the... If you take the first edition to the current edition and every single change adds up to 105,000. I think it's kind of a pointless exercise, but even a change in grammar is going to change a full sentence of the original dictation. It's and going so, to mean it was edited. Sometimes I tell Brian that he's missing the point because the Book of Mormon is still in bad need of editing. <laughs> So when you say, oh, it, nothing's not one full sentence has been changed, I say, well, it needs to be, <laughs> you know. Right, or just changing white and delightsome to pure and delightsome, which Joseph Smith himself did in the second edition of the Book of Mormon, 1837. Just that one example refutes yeah. his statement here. Right. He's a fudge, it's the fudge word, you know. He's sneaking that fudge word in there so he can have a, an excuse. Well, I think it's clear to everybody by now that Brian Hales is a mother fudger. <laughs> he's fudging. Hopefully he's fidgeting. Uh, so in the next slide. He is if we'll, he's watching. Go ahead. We'll get to um, move on from his Book of Mormon defense to uh, his next paragraph. In, in his writings, Dan Vogel describes Joseph Smith as a pious fraud, but frauds don't produce books like the Book of Mormon. Only actual authors with literary skills can do that. This fact is ignored throughout Vogel's works, including Charisma Under Pressure. Assuming Joseph Smith had the skills also ignores dozens of eyewitness accounts declaring he didn't. An issue Charisma fails to address let alone resolve. So the thing is right off at the last part is that we already quoted a bunch of people who contradicted, uh, you know, or showed that lack of education didn't uh, disqualify Joseph Smith from being the author of the Book of Mormon. 
Uh, the next slide will kind of refute the rest of that statement. Here, mm. Here's Bart Ehrman. Uh, he should, uh, uh, Brian should introduce himself to Bart Ehrman. Hales asserts that pious frauds don't produce books like the Book of Mormon. Only actual authors with literary skills can do that, as if the two are mutually exclusive. He needs to inform himself about Bart Ehrman, especially forged writing in the name of God, why the Bible's authors are not who we think they are. Also like forgery and counterforgery, forgery, the use of literary deceit in early Christian polemics. So both these are pretty good books. Uh, regarding the does, well, I, we already refuted uh, the second part. So, right, and there are vast books of pseudepigrapha for the Old Testament and apocrypha yes. for the New Testament. They can fill whole bookshelves. And these are pious frauds. Yes. Because, well, some of them were trying to do good things by introducing uh, ideas and doctrines into the early Christian church, especially um, by forging pa Paul's writings and, and other apostles because they thought there would be no other way to in, to for the Christian community to adopt new ideas. Right. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about this is that not only does the Book of Mormon fit comfortably in the realm of pseudepigrapha, but typically pseudepigrapha was written, it was attributed to people who had an established track record, whether it was Moses or Paul or some other individual, that people would give authority to what it is they thought they actually wrote when they encountered this forgery. But the reason they're writing these things is not because they're going along with everything that's already believed about these people It's because they've got contrary views that they want to get into the discussion and hopefully have adopted. And in that sense, it strikes me as similar to the Book of Mormon, which over and over is identifying different religious controversies that were in existence in Joseph Smith's day and coming down hard and fast with an answer to each one of them. Yeah, so he, he invented his own authorities you know, new characters. He didn't draw on some uh, Old Testament prophet uh, that people already trusted. Um, but the thing was, is that uh, Joseph, if Joseph Smith presented his own ideas of a farm boy, nobody wants to buy a book from a farm boy about theology, you know. And so he did it this way which was a more successful route to take. He created his own authorities, but he also, he uh, built authority for himself by having them prophesy of his coming. Joseph Second Nephi 3. Yeah. Joseph, the son of Joseph, who should bring about much restoration. And interestingly you know. there, Dan, I don't mean to get you off the track, but interestingly there in a book of Mormon that's written by, people who are new to his audience, because they're over there in the new world, right? We don't find out about him in the Bible. Nevertheless, in 2 Nephi 3, he has Lehi quoting from Joseph from the Old Testament and attributing this prophecy of Joseph Smith to, to, to Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament. Yes, and that's pseudepigrapha within pseudepigrapha. <laughs> so, yes, true. Thanks for that. Um, so our next paragraph, uh, let's see, the second glaring problem uh, involves how Vogel portrays 
the people around Joseph Smith as gullible dupes, which I don't do, who could who couldn't detect what Vogel easily can see nearly 200 years later. Charisma empowered Joseph to deceive all those Mormons. How, how could that happen? Well, while some of Joseph Smith's followers might have been that naive, the vast majority were skeptical and devout Christians. Well, it, it happened. To how me, does Dan. he know that? How does he know that? <laughs> I know. I know. How does he know that? But I will tell you, however you describe me, it yeah. happened to me. Bill, yeah. did it happen to you? I'm I'm only partially listening because I'm trying to find a video. <clears throat> oh. It's like a TikTok short where Joseph Smith is coming up with words like off the cuff, like the shiny. Oh, hop. right. I've seen, oh, yes, oh, I know what you're talking we about. Showed, uh, where somebody's, somebody's mouth is in his place of Joseph's mouth and they're, oh. they're saying it, but I couldn't, I can't oh, find it. Oh, in association with uh, the Book of Abraham. Remember? Where he's making up the names of the different I do. planets. It's very yeah, but I'm trying, that's what it is. We played at. it on this. We played it on this show uh, a while back. Yeah, but how do I find just that yeah. video somewhere out there in the internet? Yeah, there? and I, I sent it. To, I forget. Some Somebody made it. Um, because it's hilarious. I, I wouldn't. It is. Uh, shine, shine. You know, he's just, he's just winging it, you know. Crass McGraw. But, Anyway, that's uh, why I wasn't listening. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, good luck on that. I don't know how, how you're yeah. going to find that. Um, it seems and, to me like uh, Brian is setting up a tremendous straw man of what it is you're actually arguing. He's yeah, saying, well, he hasn't he's saying read charisma. it. Yeah, go ahead. You you address that. Uh, he hasn't, he hasn't read man. it, so how does he know what, what I'm doing? Oh, but, that's right. Um, he's still trying to read it while he's bicycling. Yeah. They're running or something. Or he's running Don Bradley's bicycling. Right. Uh, the second problem, as Hale sees it, is that I portray Smith's early followers as gullible dupes because they don't detect the fraud. First of all, Smith believed in his mission, believed he was inspired, and was willing to use deception on occasion to advance his cause. So there wasn't, there was nothing to detect in their interactions with Smith. Like, because he was he believed in his mission he wasn't like deceiving them trying to get you know uh, con them into some other thing but nothing never do i portray smith as a base deceiver but as an extremely skilled deceiver which he had honed as a treasure seer people like stoll continued to believe he had a gift to see buried treasures despite his never recovering one that takes skill and finding the right people experience has shown that one doesn't have to be gullible uneducated or a lapsed christian to be taken in by a charismatic leader or join a cult mm -hmm. it's naive to say someone like brigham young couldn't be manipulated even the most sophisticated people have blind spots Smart people can uh, people are conned every day. They just usually don't report it because they're embarrassed. Many will continue to believe in the con man even long after they're, they've been exposed. I mean, if you ever watch those shows where, with catfish, people where, say women have been catfished. Mm -hmm. I watch Dr. Phil a lot. I used to. Uh, 
and he would have these women that were cat older women that were catfished and played uh, on their vulnerabilities and loneliness and all that. And even after Dr. Phil showed that this was a cat, catfish con, the woman would still continue to believe in it as a true mm. believer in, in, in this person. So go watch it. <laughs> you know, it, it's real. Uh, so, uh, Dan, Dan, yes. the irony to me is this, and I want to apologize to, um, to Brian Hales and any TBMs who might be viewing this, because I'm just going to call this one the way I see it. It is hugely ironic to me that Brian Hales as a very educated, very intelligent anesthesiologist who's been quite successful in his career and also investigating and researching polygamy and all these other things that he does. Nobody can say that he's not intelligent. He's a very intelligent person, and yet he finds himself defending as ancient and obviously modern early 19th century production, i.e. the Book of Mormon. He has been completely duped, and he is defending Joseph Smith's dupery of himself by creating a fallacious argument that intentionally avoids having to deal with any of the issues that Brian Hales knows about that demonstrate the Book of Mormon to be an early 19th century American production. He is exactly what he's describing you as portraying the early members as not being. And I think I constructed that correctly. If not, please forgive me. Your thoughts, Dan? Uh, I don't have any. Um, next, next, uh, we'll go to the next slide. It's a similar topic anyway. Uh, the historical record supports that women like Eliza Snow and Zina Huntington and men like John Taylor and Brigham Young would not have been fooled by a charismatic male as easily as Vogel portrays. <clears throat> Although they, these were all participants in polygamy. So it sounds like he's plugging, plugging a polygamy argument into my thing here. But... I think uh, Fawn Brody, well, she, we won't quote Fawn Brody. We did last week. The scenarios depicted through charisma seem comic book-like, where Smith's followers behave differently than gen genuinely sincere and skeptical religionists would have behaved. So he, he assumes that they're all skeptics. Um, he he accuses me of portraying Smith's followers as behaving differently than genuinely sincere and skeptical religionists would behave. On the contrary, I believe I was fair. I was fairly neutral about Smith's followers, allowing them to tell their own stories. I was less concerned about their conversations or conversions. I mean, than with how they interacted with Smith afterwards. Frankly, I don't know how Hales can say that because I humanize both Smith and his followers by highlighting arguments and disagreements. It wasn't a simple matter of Smith dictating a revelation and everyone following. That would be a caricature or comic book-like story. Instead, my book focuses on the politics involved with Smith's leadership role. First-generation Mormons were nothing like current Mormons, who, you know, basically follow once the decision's been made by the leaders and the discussion's over. 
Hales, the first generation Mormons weren't like that. Hales not only admitted to the, our mutual friend that I quoted last week about his not reading uh, the Book of Mormon before he wrote his review, he, he admitted to this mutual acquaintance that he hadn't read my book, but he also said, Dan contrives a competition for leadership between him, Joseph Smith, and Edward Partridge, but it is a mirage. Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon, which gave him superiority over everyone who might have claimed authority. On the contrary, Joseph Smith not only had trouble with Bishop Partridge, but also all the leadership in, in Missouri, who eventually all got excommunicated. <laughs> you know? So according to Hales, I make Joseph Smith's followers into caricatures because I don't portray them as genuinely sincere and skeptical religionists. But when I do, I'm creating a mirage because no one would dare challenge the translator of the Book of Mormon, which shows Hales doesn't know anything about the development of authority in the early church, which hopefully he will learn about when he reads my book. He should have stuck with numbers and not challenged you on history, I think. <laughs> well, he has to read it. But I, I'm not alone in this. I mean, Mike McKay wrote that book on authority, and it basically recognizes this development of authority. And, and um, you know, the, the, as it turns out, if, we'll talk a little bit here for a second about um, <clears throat> Bishop Partridge. <clears throat> A revelation given in November 1831, appointing Joseph Smith president of the high priesthood. So there was no high priesthood until June 1831. The high priesthood was introduced, and they were all the same. Everybody had this high priesthood. Bishop Partridge and Joseph Smith were equal. Then all of a sudden, after he has this dispute with Partridge in Missouri over the land that was Joe Smith chose to build a temple on by revelation, and they got in an argument. <laughs> Joe Smith and, and Partridge got in an argument, and Joe Smith was so furious that Partridge would challenge his revelation and his authority that, he, uh, according to Ezra Booth, he, his anger bordered on madness, you know, with Partridge. And when Ezra Booth wrote a, a Partridge later, wrote him a letter saying, remember that Joe Smith displayed a disposition that was very unchristian-like, you know, uh, not what you would expect from a religious leader. Um, so part, Partridge, and as time goes on, Partridge, there's still a continuing thing all the way up to 1834. But in, eight, in November 1831, uh, when he got Joe Smith got back to Ohio, he dictated a revelation, which is now part part of it is in DNC 107. 107 originally was giving, given in November 1831, and then uh, uh, expanded with another in, more instructions on priesthood in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. But uh, you can read the shorter version in the Book of Commandments. Um, so what so, does what does Joseph Smith do then in November of 1831 after he getting back to Missouri? Him, he appoints himself as president of the high priesthood. And the revelation says 
a bishop is not above the president of the high priesthood. So it's specifically addressing. So in case you didn't problem. get it, in case you didn't get your your position below me, Partridge, when I say <laughs> when God says I'm the president of the high priesthood, we're going to yeah. make it really clear for you that the bishop, you don't cut the mustard. You're still beneath. You're yeah. beneath me. Yeah. So uh, Hales doesn't know what he's talking about when he says Joseph Smith, uh, as a translator, you know, just because he translated the Book of Mormon doesn't make him above everybody else. In fact. DNC 5, which was uh, dictated to Martin Harris in March of uh, 1829, said that Joseph Smith should pretend to no other gift. Yeah, no other gift will be given to him. Um, and uh, then that was later changed to no, to pretend to no other gift until it, it is translated. Right. <laughs> So, which opened it up um, a continuing evolving of the hierarchy of the church. Um, so it wasn't clear who was in in charge of the church. They were a lot of the early Mormons saw themselves as equal, as a more they were elders. It was a more Presbyterian type church government, mm -hmm. um, not a hierarchy. Mm. Um, so yet we have. So who would challenge the Translator of the Book of Mormon? Well, Hiram Page, mm -hmm. who started getting revelations through his stone. And Joseph Smith had to put that down. Then there was uh, this Miss Hubble in Kirtland, Ohio, who started getting a following and influence. And Joseph Smith had to get a revelation to put her in her place. Um, even back in New York, we have Oliver Cowdery and the Whitmers, demanding that Joseph Smith take a passage out of the Articles and Covenants, which is Doctrine and Covenants section 20, which outlines the authority and uh, various, uh, you know, the, the different offices and different beliefs of the early church. Um, they, wanted, they wanted him to remove DNC 2037, which said that a person would have to go before the elders and prove that they had this saving faith before they could be baptized. They right, and you actually had, according to that passage, you have to have manifest that you've received of the, the Spirit. Yeah. Unto your, what, unto your salvation? Before you before you get baptized. So right. that's, that was the problem they had with it, because now it's reversing everything. The clearly established idea is you get baptized, then you get the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is talking about reversing that, and that was the problem that Oliver Cowdery had with it. But Joseph Smith did not um, agree, correct? He said, "How dare you change the try to change the words of God?" Well, they didn't understand. They didn't understand it as as unalterable, you know. Um, so, DNC uh, twenty isn't like written in the voice of deity either. It was a foundational document. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the they wanted to prevent priestcraft. They said, and it ran counter to their visions of what the unity in the church and the equality everyone would be equal in dan i know we're on the home everything. stretch now but i think okay. bill has found that video or that meme or whatever you call it of joseph smith and the process really? through which he may have gone through to come up with some of his unique words we can try this let's see if this works can you hear that 
No. Don't see it or hear it. Oh, wait. We're going to where we played it in a prior episode? Yeah, I couldn't find the video. Oh, okay. Oh, that's well, it. This will do. That's Joseph Smith. I, I don't hear, hear anything. Yeah. Oh, you can't hear any sound? Oh, this is with Brent and Dan. Yeah. You couldn't hear any sound, though? No, no. sound. Let me just try really quick to see if I can get this back in. <clears throat> Sorry. Shares. That's okay. You're filling audio. time. There's that. Add to stream. Oh, I do so enjoy the show. This is not the end of the show. This is the clip <laughs> no, we're playing. Don't leave, everybody. Yeah, yeah, don't leave. Please <laughs> stick around for a minute or two. Higher. It's as loud as I can make it. Oh, my God. Not the nasty. Um, oxen wagon. No wind. Wago Ox Owen. There's Onsen, Shibble, Hankis, Fliss, and Os. These are the Egyptian names as revealed through the stone. It's probably not loud enough. Yeah. Sorry. If anybody knows where this is, I'd love to have a copy of that because that's a good one to play every once in a while. All right. Okay, so this is slide 52. How many I'll do we have to, to go, I'll Dan? To, I'll more. try to find it. One more. Okay. One more, folks, <clears throat> and then we're out of here. We are almost there. Oh, maybe we take some calls. I don't know. Oh, maybe we don't have enough time. Okay, what? here we are. The... Well, that, this is the slide we've oh, just gone short, over. Yeah, we just went over that one. Next, you one, have anything okay. else Next to say one, about sorry. the slide, Dan? That's it. That's the last one. Okay. No, I don't think so. We just went through all of that. Okay, so it appears, right? It appears that the version Joseph Smith portrayed by Joseph Smith is a caricature and inadequate. Uh, portrayed Neither by Vogel. By you, oh. sir. <laughs> Let's read that again. Okay. From the it, ap it appears that the version of Joseph Smith portrayed by Vogel is a caricature and inadequate. Neither is it clear Smith's followers would have been so blinded by his charisma under pressure to Smith's true motives if they were what Joseph what. <laughs> Vogel declares them to have been. Caution is advised for anyone tempted to embrace the version of Smith and his followers portrayed in Charisma Under Pressure and Vogel's other writings. So we've been cautioned. I think the remarkable um, thing about that paragraph is now that we know that he hadn't even read the book when he wrote it. Well, he took his own caution by not reading Ah. It. So he didn't even read it, at least not the whole way through. Listening yeah. to it on audiobook, as he so evidently uh, the Book of Mormon is not one of the, is not the only book 
for which you don't have to read to have an opinion. Exactly. Bravo, sir. Bravo. (laughs) It's something like that. Obviously, Hales is a hardened apologist and intolerant if even the most charitable position a naturalist can take with regard to Joe Smith. Thank you for listening so patiently tonight and the night before. Well, maybe if he had read the whole thing, he would have given you two and a half stars. So maybe we t- Hales will call in. What do you say about phone calls, line. Bill? Can we take a, like three phone calls? Uh, I just put up the banner. So folks are welcome to call in 662-667-6667. Uh, we are taking calls. So it looks like one caller is calling in right now. So I'm just waiting for the computerized call screener to give me some info. So we should have questions for Dan Bogle. Yeah, this will be exciting. In fact, I'll just try to go right to the caller. Caller, you're on Mormonism Live. Looks like, how are you? Oh, looks like you're taking a How are you? Awesome. What's the name? (laughs) How's it going, guys? Good, good. Great. Sorry. Can you hear me better now, Bill? Yeah. What's the name? Blake. Blake, glad to have you on. You're with uh, Dan Vogel and Radio Free Mormon and myself. What's what's on your mind tonight? So first of all, I want to thank Dan. I did read the first book. Had to pay 200 bucks for it, but it was worth it. Um, <laughs> but the question I have tonight, and I did sell it after, but um, so I'm a direct descendant of Edward Partridge, Uh-oh. who we've been talking about tonight. Yeah. And in my studies, I've found... I. I kind of, so one of the weirdest things in modern Mormonism is the fact that bishops still act under the Aaronic priesthood, right? Dan, my question for you, do you believe that's because of Joseph's interactions with Dan Vogel when they made up the two priesthoods and it's just kind of survived through the years? Are we having the same problem? Is this contagious, what you were doing earlier, Dan? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Blake, do you know what you just said? (laughs) (laughs) You just said whether Joseph Smith was having a tr- problem with Dan Vogel. You probably meant Edward Partridge, I'm guessing. I'm not that old. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's yeah, okay. problem with Edward Partridge, not Dan. I don't know. Maybe Joseph has a problem with Dan Vogel. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, that's my question for you, Dan. Did Edward Partridge um, and the association with Joseph Smith, do you believe that's why bishops still act under the Aaronic priest instead of the Melchizedek? Hmm. I think that's a great question, Dan. What do you think? Um, well, he was a high priest, and then later they, they introduced the concept that if you were a real descendant of Aaron, you wouldn't need the high priesthood. So I they the bishop bishop rules over the temporal affairs of the church and um the which is separate from the spiritual <laughs> affairs of the church so bishop is not over the spiritual affairs over the temporal affairs i i don't really know if the bishop is considered i mean he's over the ironic priesthood but he's not uh a, it's not an ironic priesthood office you know what I mean? So I don't know exactly what what the question is that way because I don't see the bishop as being 
in the running priesthood. He he's a, he presides over it. But you know, at the time they started bishop, there was no ironic priesthood. There it wasn't called ironic priesthood. Right. There there was only authority, and uh, elders were over the spiritual. They were the spiritual leaders and uh, priests and teachers, and then later deacons. Uh, were separate so there's like a two-tier thing with the elders but they all had authority and there it wasn't known as ironic and it wasn't known as melchizedek okay so they became a lesser priesthood when the high priesthood was introduced in june of 1831 in june of 1831 at the june 1831 conference when the high priesthood was introduced that was the Melchizedek priesthood had nothing to do with Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were associated with the keys of the apostleship, and they, they were introduced after the apostles were organized. So there were in 1831, there was no Aaronic priesthood. It didn't come about the Aaronic, uh, it, let, it was called lesser priesthood, and then when you get to 1835 with the revisions in um, the uh, one o DNC 107, that's when the term ironic really is used and Melchizedek is used and there's two priesthoods. But in terms of when the bishop was uh, named, it wasn't not in association with ironic priesthood. So it kind of, I don't know how to answer that question because it's in my mind kind of a different evolution of things. Yeah, well, I, I actually appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's to me today still the way I understand it that the office of a bishop is actually the head of the Aaronic priesthood for a local ward, right? Um, and then the elder yeah. form president would be an office of the Melchizedek priesthood. So I, I guess through my studies through the years, I just wondered if perhaps there was a time when Joseph said, hey, Edward, um, you just have that lesser priesthood, even though he was the presiding bishop. And that's why that, I don't know, that uh, has gone through the years where bishops still act in the Aaronic priesthood in their calling within a ward. Right. So it's like the, the bishop is the president of the priest's quorum, correct? So he's the president Correct. of the Aaronic priesthood in a sense. Yeah. But that's the way we look at it now. As it was unfolding, it's the the, the picture is is kind of different. Um so when Joseph Smith said he was president of the high priesthood in November, and then in January he got ordained by Sigmund Rigdon as in as a president of the high priesthood presided over all the high priests. And then they went down to Missouri and uh, he was sustained as president of the high priesthood there. And they shook hands and everything was good. And then Smith went back to Ohio. The uh, leaders in Missouri had second thoughts about what they agreed to. And they thought they accused Joe Smith of trying to be a dictator, dictating everything. And, um, 
So there was this ongoing problem with the Missouri church over authority and Joseph Smith trying to run the Missouri church from Ohio. And the leaders thought they had been called um, to lead the church in Missouri. And it was Bishop Partridge. He took his calling seriously. It's his stewardship. And God would give him revelation over his stewardship. And so he thought Joseph Smith was kind of forcing his way into there and trying to tell him what to do uh, when God would tell him what to do. So uh, that was that started the rift and it continued and it never really got resolved. Uh, even in 1834, after Zion's camp and the failure of charisma, Joseph Smith's authority <laughs> was kind of up in the air for a while and they started trying to, to um, become more independent in Missouri. Uh, and, and if you read my new biography, you'll go see all the details of the interactions and the politics and the Joseph Smith maneuvering and uh, the Missouri leaders resenting a lot of what Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was trying to do. And... So the, the, that's what I mean is the first generation Mormons were nothing like uh, Mormons today where they fall into place today very easily, follow the leader. And it wasn't really that way in the beginning. Um, it wasn't no, because so that would clear. be a two-dimensional caricature. Caricature, yeah, excuse me. Ex exactly. Well, Joe Smith had to work to get to where we're at today. You know what I'm saying? Like it's only this way today because just Smith worked out all of this, pro these problems and authority and built his hierarchy. And, um, and now it's much easier to, to um, command the church mm -hmm. without being, having to get a revelation every single time. Does that answer your question, Blake? Sorry, Blake. Yeah, I think so. I and I do look forward to reading this next book. So thanks, y'all. Sweet. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for Thank calling, you, Blake. Blake. By the I want to make a comment here too. This isn't a question. But Brian Hales is famous for going, where did Joseph Smith come up with the words to say that got written down that became the Book of Mormon? And I sit there and I listen to Brian Hales. He's been on a number of different shows, not ours, hopefully in the future. That'd be great. But so far not ours, but he will get on a show. And he will just expatiate for over an hour, maybe two hours, on whatever subject that he is interested in, whatever he's working on, whether it was polygamy, then it was Book of Abraham, now it's the Book of Mormon, and giving his ideas on the subject. And he's worked this out in his mind to the point where he doesn't really need somebody to ask him questions. He can do this lecture fashion for two hours and just go on and on. And it struck me that at the same time that he is talking about the question, where did Joseph Smith come up with the words as if it must have been from God? He's going on for an hour or two, talking, talking, talking. And if someone were to take that episode and a recording of that episode of him talking for two hours and transcribe it, you'd have at least one half of the Book of Alma. So even while he's talking about where did Joseph Smith come up with the words, He's using hundreds and thousands of words himself in order to raise that question. Mm. Mm. Just a thought. Yeah.
Okay, I've got two more calls here. Uh, next one I think is Adam. Adam, is that the name? Yeah, that's me. All right, my friend, you're can on you the show. Yeah, we can hear you great. You're on the Have show. Have you been Go true and faithful? Oh, great. Yeah, I apologize. I'm kind of nervous uh, talking to three powerhouses uh, in this area. <laughs> but um, yeah, my question is for uh, for Dan, um, and I apologize for I'm not in a great place. I'm on my way home. But uh, I just want to ask, um, I heard you mention the name Lazarus with a TH rather than Lazarus, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that difference. Because I, uh, I, I was given that name and told never to divulge it. May or may or may not have been given that name. Um, and I couldn't find it in the scriptures at the time, and I couldn't find a good explanation. So just wondering if you could, I know it's kind of a tangent, but okay. Kind of Adam, can I? I want to ask you. I want to ask to make sure I'm understanding your question. Okay, now there's a name Lazarus in the New Testament. The guy who gets, you know, yeah. brother Mary Martha dies, gets resurrected, uh, raised to life by Jesus. Jesus is also from a town called exactly. Nazareth, which ends with th. Yeah. And are you thinking that Dan yeah. said the name Lazareth, ending with th and beginning with l? Correct. Is that the name is, that is you're that asking right? about? Am I right, Dan? I'll let Dan yeah. answer the question. Uh, I just want to make sure I understood it. I don't know. I don't okay. remember using that word at all. I think that Sorry. he might have misspoken. Uh, I don't think he meant, meant to say oh, okay. Lazareth. But are you saying, first off, Dan, oh. am I correct? You didn't, mean, you didn't mean to say Lazareth? I don't remember saying anything close to that. Does the word Lazareth... Mean anything. Yeah, what does that mean to you, Adam? Um, well, <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Uh, well, now now that I hear that you didn't say that, I could have sworn you said Lazarus, and I, I've only heard it one other time. I've been Which saying a lot there. of weird names. I, I guess that's, <laughs> so. I guess I, that's my answer. Um, maybe you're both members of the same exclusive brotherhood. Is your yeah, new name Lazarus? <laughs> Could no, you I, divulge to us where you heard that yeah. name? I may or may not have, but uh, in the temple. Um, yeah, I actually, <laughs> yeah. Is that your new name? Uh, and actually, yeah, reverence. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think the temple worker find, that day may have had a list. Find it anywhere in the scriptures? Uh, yeah, somewhat <laughs> as possible. Um, but yeah, the temple worker had a list. There is no such name. Um, and I, I know, you know, I had, uh, I, I met, uh, what day were you endowed, um, Adam? Yeah. Tell us what, do you know what day you were, you received your endowment and your new name? No, this was, this was back in 19, this was back in like 1998 or something. But yeah, you could look up the list, you, couldn't you, Bill? I have it right in front of me. If you just tell me what day you're endowed, I will, <laughs> as a magical Swami, I, I will tell the that. audience what that new name was for the day. But I'll bet Lazarus is on there, and I'm uh, sure okay. Lazareth is not. I don't see either of them. I'm looking. You're saying at, Lazarus isn't a new name for a guy? Um, let me look here. Uh, those are female male names. That's December. The male name. Okay, so male names between 1993 and 2013. Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S, on the 26th. Were you yeah, endowed on the 26th? The I 26th have no, of the month. no memory of what day it was. It does but say yeah. Lazarus with an S on uh, the end, but that's it. 
Huh. That's so interesting. It so you're saying that between those years, in those so, years, on the 26th day of the month, every male going through for their endowment would have received the new name Lazarus? Going through for the first time, yes. Yeah, for the first time. I think yeah. everybody going for oh, the dead got a different name. So, well, so seriously, maybe the person had a list. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Anyway, I think but, every twenty sixth yeah. of the month, there's all these guys walking out of the temple saying, "My new name is Lazareth." <laughs> think about it. If if he told you the wrong name and you couldn't get into the celestial kingdom because yeah. you had your new name wrong, yeah, that's yeah, that's very interesting. That I never way. even thought of it that way. Damn. Think of all the but other I names did, you'd have trouble pronouncing. Madsen one time. You met Truman Madsen, a, a true a true scholar. Yeah, so I, I, I actually went over his house one time because my friend worked for him, and uh, I told him my name, uh, Adam, and he explained it, you know, oh, really explained all the meetings of my name for me. And so I thought uh, the only way to top that would be to have Dan Vogel explain uh, my other name for me. So anyway, oh. yeah, that's interesting. It may just Sorry. come down to a... a misinterpretation so one yeah, little imagine. piece of advice don't yeah. believe anything truman madsen yeah. told you Ooh, ouch but adam oh, yeah. doesn't it mean red i, I think he, I, at the time i thought he was a great great guy so he might be the nice, worst nice mormon nice. scholar of all time dan doesn't adam <laughs> mean red like reddish earth yeah from which he was made yeah yeah clay he said from from the clay or and many and he got one right but imagine that poor temple worker. Yeah. Every time he's at church and he talks about Jesus, what does that sound like? Jesus. What's that? Jesus. Oh. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, thank you, Adam. Oh my gosh, that was a great yeah, call. Thank Thanks, Adam. All right, and then one last one. This looks like it's Rick. We're Flynn, I gotta. We gotta see what this is. So, is it Flynn? Rick or Flynn? It's Rick. Rick, Rick, how are you today? Good. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed this. My question for Dan is, um, I've always been kind of fascinated by the Adamic language uh, that you know Joseph Smith was, I guess, revealing and translating. But, and I'll, honestly, I was first exposed to it in your um, YouTube channel because you have those videos about the. Um, Egyptian grammar and alphabet, and there's stuff about the Adamic language. But yeah. was that did that become like a revelatory dead end for the church? Because it's sort of this fascinating concept, but I never heard about it when I was an active member, other than the name Adam on Diamond. And did nothing ever really get developed with it? I'm just curious what whatever happened because it was sort of this very interesting, um, creative uh, concept. And you know what happened. No, well, I think they got diverted by the Egyptian propriety. Um, but that that letter that W.W. Phelps wrote to his wife, and he had a sample of the pure language, and it had like six or seven characters and definitions, and then that was transferred over to the Egyptian um, alphabets. But so they were still interested in language. It just transferred over to Egyptian. Right. My understanding was that the um, the general belief at the time was that the older the language, the closer you were going to get to the original language, which is Adamic. 
So Hebrew and Egyptian being very old languages, at least according to the understanding in the Western world at the time, that's about as old as you can get. Those are much closer approximations to Adamic. And Hebrew itself was understood in some quarters to be virtually identical yeah. to the Adamic language. Mm. And by the way, uh, Rick, I'll just mention to you that the church had Adamic language alive and well in the LDS church in the temple endowment up until they deleted it in 1990. Oh, that yeah, that one phrase. Mm -hmm. Pay, lay, <laughs> ale. That's Adamic. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I, I, I did that. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's also Hebrew. But is that actually Hebrew or is that made up? Well, the ale part is God. Yeah. Because this was the kind of Sephardic uh, Hebrew that Joseph Smith learned from Joshua Satius. So when they wrote L, what we would normally write as L for God, they would frequently write A-L-E. Tell me if oh, I got okay. this wrong, Dan. I was like Elohim. <laughs> yeah, Elohim, right? Or Barak Ale. Barak Ale. Right. Yeah. It's God of Thunder. Uh. I don't have anything okay. to say about it. But, really. but so basically, that, that's funny because I, I always thought it was ale as like the, the drink as opposed to L as an Elohim. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's disappeared then from the theology. Right, and it's Adam, of course, praying, Oh God, hear the words of my mouth. And the Oh God part is represented in the last word of ale. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the rest of it um, I couldn't tell you about, but I think that they are Hebrew approximations for things like mouth and ear, maybe. What do you think, Dan? You're the expert here. No. Speak not up. On, not on Hebrew. <laughs> um, all, all I can say is that bar Barak Ale might have been among those uh, Adamic words that they were wor working on. It's those. It's among the code names that were yes. used to uh, substitute uh, various people, places. And in the ancient Enochic literature, Barak Ale is one of the names for Enoch as well. And it shows up as one of the code names in the Doctrine and Covenants for Joseph Smith before those code names were eliminated, as well as Enoch. Yeah, that's right. He, he was called okay. Enoch there too. We may have talked all around your question. Have so, we come uh, close to yeah, they were fascinated. They were fascinated for a time with the uh, tongues and Adamic language, and uh, they used to sing and uh, prophesy in tongues and, and interpret. Then they ran into trouble because the there was a Hewlett branch in Missouri that were speaking in tongues, and they thought because it was spoken in tongues, it had to be inspired and had an authority with them and. When they would interpret tongues in, in this Hewlett branch in Missouri, it would be against the church's program. They would be predicting uh, bad things would be happening to the Mormons. They turned out to be right, <laughs> but not before they got in trouble by uh, church councils. Now, Hewlett branch, help me. That's a, that's a branch of the LDS church in Missouri? Yeah, they, it was named after... Uh, I forget the guy's first name. Some guy named Hewlett? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so they call it the, yeah, the Hewlett branch. Hmm. And they were practicing Charles, but I'm not preaching sure. in tongues. And then, of course, you have to have an interpreter. 
and they would speak in tongues and people would interpret it. And the interpretation of the tongues was bad mojo going to be happening to the Mormons in Missouri. Right. And so they got disciplined and told not to do that anymore. And they didn't, <laughs> but they turned out to be right, which I thought was kind of ironic. So wh when was that? 1833, five, The Hewlett six? Branch. Uh, well, it's in the Far West record. So, okay, so 38? Yeah. So 38. So after 38, do we have a lot of speaking in tongues going on in the church? Does that mark a time when it falls off the practice of glossolalia? Uh, probably, yes. I can't remember after that. Because Joseph what, Smith what in his appears. teachings takes a decided turn against speaking in tongues and says that's the one that's yeah. the easiest to counterfeit for Satan. And therefore, yes. you shouldn't believe anybody just based on tongues alone. Without an interpreter. Well, so uh, the early, there was a lot of early uh, tongue speaking when the Mormon missionaries came to, you know, Oliver Cowdery and the Lamanite missionaries. Uh, came to Ohio, they were, because the Book of Mormon talked about speaking in tongues, you know, the tongues of angels. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were very excited about that. And they wanted to see uh, that manifested, the spirit manifested through tongues and other things. And they got a little wild there in 1830, 31, where Joseph Smith finally got a revelation condemning all these uh, uh, excessive spiritual phenomena. Mm -hmm. And so when Brigham Young came to Ohio in 1832, November 1832, um, and he started praying in tongues, and everyone looked to Joseph Smith to see what he would say about it. And according to Brigham Young anyway, uh, Joseph Smith uh, sanctioned his use said that, or, you know, verified it and said, um, it was the tongue, it was a pure Adamic tongue. And then Joe Smith spoke in tongues. So Joe Smith had the ability to speak in tongues. He spoke in tongues in the early, early church. Then it started that Hewlett branch problem, more or less started have, having a bad effect. People thought because they were speaking in tongues that it had authority and it was competing with Joseph Smith's authority, really, or the church, any church leader's authority. And they started putting it down again. That was a big bait and switch when they turned it into when, when the 19 year old elder goes on a mission and he learns a new language that's speaking in tongues, right? Like that was a, well, that was a smoke and mirrors trick too. That, well, there's two kinds of tongues. There, there is the, Glossolalia, which is more ecstatic uh, tongues that has have no meaning really, and then there's xenoglossia, glossolalia, <clears throat> which is the ability to speak a foreign language, which yeah, does seem to be what's represented in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? Well. Because all the different Jews from all the different countries heard the gospel preached in their own language. Yeah, when the, the apostles preached, so it wasn't speaking, they weren't 
speaking a foreign language. Some people confuse that with xenoglossia, glossolalia. They they think the apostles were speaking, had this ability to speak foreign language, but they spoke this one language and everyone understood in their own language. So it was the receivers that were hearing it in their language, not the apostles speaking it. Mm, okay. So I still, I still think it's a description of glossolalia, of this ecstatic speech. But there are uh, there are documented occasions when people spontaneously speak foreign languages, and some in some studies they found that the person had heard the foreign language at one time, and under a certain um, altered state of consciousness, they could recall this and uh, speak it. And it, they didn't know what they were saying, but it would be French or some sort of thing. But it would be found out later that they had been exposed to these languages and they were recalling it in a, in a very acute way um, that they so couldn't Dan, do outside of this state of consciousness. Follow up question, Dan. Yeah. So what do you make of the fact that a person's ability to speak a foreign language that they've never studied is a sign of demonic possession? <laughs> I, well, I don't believe in demonic position, but um, I don't know. I, that's uh, that's in that category of people making crap up, you know. <laughs> you know, signs of the gods, signs of the devil. You know, it's all um, interpretive. The power of Christ compels you. So yeah. the last comment You're I want to make on tonight's show, I do want to thank Dan. By the way, I want to give you a chance to make your closing comments. Bill, I want you to weigh in too, but I just want to say that I suddenly realized about Lazarus. Remember Adam called in and thought his new name was Lazarus? The answer is that Lazarus is Adamic for Lazarus. Makes perfect sense. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. All those years as a Mormon apologist have served me well. It has an Egyptian root word, too, which ties it to the book of Abraham as well. I'll bet it does. Mm -hmm. It's the ending in the TH. What do you think, Dan? Closing argument for this encounter with the evisceration of Brian Hales, which is what we may call this episode. Well, for me, this is just a beginning of my probably a longer video based on um, Brian Hale's um, fair presentation. So you're going to do a video about this? Probably. At some point, I'm, I'm trying to spend the next year focusing on videos on the Book of Mormon and various apologetic uh, devices. And one of, one of them will be on the Arabian um, part you know, the, the uh, Nahum, mm -hmm. you know, actually I'm doing all of Lehi's travels and there's apologetic uh, evidences from Arabia, which I'm not, I think there's um, a lot of manipulation. Of yeah, the incense things. trails right down the peninsula there. I got to do it the other way though. There we go. <laughs> yeah, but 
you know that how they tell their how they find their evidences and and try to get around the problem of the three-day travel and you know trying to find the uh river uh valley of lemuel you know in yeah. the river layman and all that I, that that right off that first part is just so wrong how they try to make it into an evidence yeah. and, and yeah, something course, about there's... the 19th parallel yeah well and that gets into lehi's travels which is a, a, a revelation to joseph smith according to early church tradition uh that apologists have tried to ignore so and it's, a, it's called lehi's travels there's two documentary sources for this lehi traveled and made his um change from a south southeast direction to a eastern direction at the 19th parallel south uh north latitude whatever latitude arabia is oh it'd be um, north it's above the equator yeah north latitude and uh and then crossed the great ocean and landed in chile at the 30th 30th degree parallel south latitude right yeah, so south. yeah and so uh that was a statement called lehi's travels it was attributed to joseph smith that some mormon historians have uh listed it in the uncanonized revelations of joseph smith but when it caused a caused a problem you know, with the limited geography and the Arabian Peninsula part, uh, they kind of tried to discard it and talk it down. But right. I'm going to talk about it in detail and how it actually dates to probably 1830. Very good. We're looking forward to that, Dan. Dan, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. We yeah. are over the three-hour mark. Wow. Okay, everybody, thank you for coming uh it's been a privilege thank you okay. we have carved brian hales as a dish fit for the gods remind Anything me again you want to I say actually, at the bill i just want I, well it <laughs> so last week you didn't get a chance to answer i was asking you how many stars you'd give brian hales how oh <laughs> <laughs>